Hey fellow album divers, Trevor here. And before we take a ridiculously deep dive into Ben Fold's 2001 debut solo album, I wanted to take a moment to let Corey and Rob from the band All Poets and Heroes talk about their 2020 release, Okeelism. This is an album I really wish I would have discovered last year for a full deep dive, and one I can't stop listening to this year. Hey everyone, this is Rob McCall and Corey Jordan from All Poets and Heroes. Our debut album, Okeelism, which you're about to hear a snippet of, was recorded all over our hometown, in friends' living rooms, borrowed music halls, and with help from a lot of musicians and friends. The album covers everything from mental health or love and loss to being pissed off about college debt. It's an album about being human, but sometimes from a higher perspective, a la Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. We feel this album is a proper way for us to introduce ourselves to you. We don't like to talk about ourselves too much, and we prefer to let the music do the talking for us. Wine Song was one of the singles we released, and one that we think sums up the sonic and lyrical spectrum of Oculism. Enjoy. Find All Poets and Heroes album Okeelism wherever you get your music. Now on to the show. Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Trevor. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between one album released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. All right, and it was your pick, Shane, this time, and we're going back to the early aughts for this one. What are we talking about today? Yeah, man, I'm super excited to talk about this album. I can't think of too many albums that go farther back with me and my listening experience. As you mentioned, we're going way back on this one to the year 2001. This album is by one of my favorite artists, Ben Folds. It's his debut solo album, and it's titled Rockin' the Suburbs. I'm rockin' the suburbs You're just like Michael Jackson did I'm rockin' the suburbs You said that he was talented I'm rockin' the suburbs yeah, good pick, Shane. Obviously, I knew Ben Folds 2 were close to the same age. I jumped on with Ben Folds 5, probably the album that most people are familiar with, with the hit song Brick. I believe that was released in, I want to say, 97. And I was very familiar with that album. And I think I had this album, but being a sign of the times, I think 
by 2001. I think this was an album I had burned or downloaded. So I don't think I had maybe all the songs in order. I, I don't think I had the physical copy, but I knew these songs better than I thought I had. When you push play on this to really do the deep dive, I was like, oh, I know that one. Oh, I know that one too. So it's just funny how some of that stuff filters in through, this would have been uh, second to last year of high school for me, 2001. So this was a fun little trip down memory lane for me as well. I would have to agree the first song that I heard was Brick as well. It was one of my favorites. I have to admit as well, my exploration of Ben Fold's solo career and the discography of Ben Fold's Five came thanks to Napster and the days that we could download. And I am pretty sure I found almost every album out there by Ben Fold's, including the EPs, the live albums, some of the rare unreleased tracks. I, I really dove into his stuff back in the day, and it solidified itself pretty quickly as uh, a main piece in my establishment of a fan of music and somebody who likes to listen to albums start to finish. I have to admit, as many times as I've heard the album that we're about to discuss today, Rock in the Suburbs, there were a lot of backstories that I had no clue about, songs that I could sing word for word, but had never really processed the deeper meanings behind them. Yeah, you bring up a good point with that. I mentioned that this was, you know, probably, if I think back on it, might be one of the first ones that was at that transition point between where I'm owning the physical copy and actually downloading it, you know, on Line or Napster or, or even just paying for it but getting it off of iTunes and putting it on my iPod at the time. Ben's a writer that the sound of the song and the sentiment behind it don't always go together. I think we touched on that when we talked about pet sounds, where even the happy-sounding songs are sad, as Mike Love had mentioned about Brian Wilson on some of those. And both in kind of the style of some of these songs and also that sentiment, I think Ben Folds writes lyrics that don't always mesh with the sound of the song. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. With this being an album that I didn't have the lyric sheet in front of me, I absorbed these songs in my car through my iPod, but doing this deep dive with you made me realize, oh, this is there's a little bit more going on to this song than I thought there was. Yeah, I totally agree. And he's been known to say that he's really strived to make pop songs, to make catchy songs that people enjoy listening to and can sing along with. But there's typically a couple more layers beneath that because he's also stated that it's very important to him to spend a lot of time thinking about the lyrics and the song once it's finished and make sure that at least at the time before he releases it, there's a, a deep emotional attachment or connection to the songs and that he truly stands behind what he's saying so that there is that sincerity behind it. And sometimes those subtleties are not super apparent if, if you're a casual listener checking out the song. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that is unique about his writing in contrast to some of the other artists that we've touched on that also maybe are very good writers that leave some room for interpretation. These, if you pay attention, do seem to have a pretty clear-cut message or story. There might be lines that we get hung up on or try to determine what he's saying, but there's not a lot of vagueness in terms of what these songs are about as a whole. These give you the freedom to dive in and really figure out what he's talking about, but I think once you do, at least the overall message is fairly clear. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. 
did you say that Brick was your entry point as well? I know you're a little bit younger than me, so. Yep, that was the first song that I heard from Ben Folds. I think one of my high school friends introduced it to me, and I remember it being one of the songs that we would often play in the car, driving around, cruising the drag back in the day. We'd have playlists that we would go through some of our favorite songs, and that was always one that we really enjoyed listening to. I'm not sure what reason i think it was the sound of the the piano that draws you into the the song and and you know it's a it's a beautiful song it's fun to sing along i don't know if i knew the deeper meaning behind it until i listened to it quite a few times or stumbled upon the live album eventually where where ben talks about it being about an unfortunate abortion that he and his girlfriend in high school had to have but there was just something powerful about that song that really connected with me and and uh, a good buddy of mine and we would listen to it all the time so I can still sing word for word every bit of it yeah we've touched on this in prior episodes but you know let's see that was 97 so I would have been I would have been 13 when that song came out and so I think that was right around the time where I was exploring music that had a little bit more deeper meaning behind it and I believe I was at a buddy of mine's house who I eventually went and saw Ben Folds in concert probably another 10 years after that. I think in maybe 2005 or 2007, I went to see Ben Folds in concert with this guy. I think it was like a VH1 Storytellers or something, at least giving enough backstory behind it to kind of draw me in and get interested in that type of thing, really what we are doing now on this podcast of like, dissecting and understanding a song. So I remember him kind of talking at least surface level or or enough to get me interested about it and then playing it and watching that at his house and going, man, this is really interesting. Music is amazing. And then this song really dictating that. So it's one of my first earliest memories, I think, of connecting to a song. That's really cool because I, I totally feel the same way. I can't think of too many songs from my junior high, high school days that have stuck with me over the years like Brick. And that's what drew me into exploring more of Ben Folds. So I'm really glad I, I stumbled upon that and that he became one of my bands early on in my formation as a, a fan of good music and somebody that I explored and tried to understand and listen to a lot through those developmental years. I think one thing that's always stuck out to me or, or made me appreciate him more is his gifted ability to play the piano and how that's not something you typically see with a rock band or even a mainstream pop band there's obviously artists that we can point out that have been inspirations to ben like elton john and billy joel but they were before our time i can't think of too many people who have made a living behind the piano making mainstream music not many people have the piano as the the focal point or the primary instrument in majority of their tracks like Ben Folds has done over the years. Yeah, you bring up a good point. You mentioned artists like Billy Joel and Elton John that are, you know, a generation or so before Ben Folds. You could throw in Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard, you know, artists like that. But again, all kind of coming from a prior generation. And I can't think of too many in our coming of age years that would fit that with the piano. You know, I think of like Alicia Keys or Nora Jones or something like that, but, you know, a little bit different genre than Ben Folds. Can't think of anybody else that was kind of making pop rock in the vein of some of those earlier artists that you mentioned at the time. So Ben Folds 
maybe was taking a little risk at the time or just knowing that this is his instrument and playing and hoping for the best. And I think I read an interview where he said something to that effect that he didn't really know how it was going to be received, but that's that's the instrument he had and that's what he was going to use to express himself. So Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Well, for people that haven't dove into Benfold's history, do you mind giving the listeners a little catch up leading up into this album and before? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I'm really excited to get into this album. I've been a fan for probably 20 years. You were you were mentioning earlier that, that you were likely a teenager when you first heard Brick. I was probably late junior high or in high school. So late 90s, early 2000s, probably before I discovered Ben Fold. So I guess that would make me a fan for the past 20 years. And I've gone through his entire discography and followed him quite a bit. But this album that we're reviewing today is is definitely my favorite. So I'm super excited to get into it. So going back to the beginning, Ben Folds was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's an extremely talented singer, songwriter, musician, composer, and record producer, most known for his amazing piano skills and catchy song lyrics. He first became interested in piano at age nine when his father, a carpenter, brought home a piano he had obtained through a barter trade with a customer who was unable to pay for his services. Oh, wow. And while learning piano, Folds was listening to songs by the likes of Elton John and, and Billy Joel that we had mentioned earlier. And it's been said that he was learning their songs by ear and really became attached to the piano sound and the pop music that those guys and others were putting out. And that's what initially grew his love of music. But in high school, he was involved with a number of bands where he played as the pianist, also as bassist, and sometimes drummer. So he experimented with other instruments as well, which we'll talk about on this album is very important because I believe he plays all the instruments. I think maybe he got some help on some of the tracks, but I think he's playing a lot of the parts on majority of the songs. After high school, he attended the University of Miami's Frost School of Music on a full percussion scholarship. But he dropped out after failing the jury, quote unquote, and losing his scholarship. After that, he says he became obsessed with piano technique and has also been quoted as saying, I spent maybe six months just running scales with a metronome like a freak. I suppose that did something. (laughs) In the late 1980s, Folds formed the band Majosha, playing as the bassist with longtime friends Evan Olson and Millard Powers. The group released several locally produced records and played at bars and frat parties. That's interesting. I I didn't read that. Millard Powers is now the bassist for Counting Crows. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't make that connection either. Wow. Very cool. So two of their tracks, Emmeline and Video, end up later showing up on a Ben Folds 5 record, which I thought was pretty cool as well. Some of these songs, Ben has said had been around for so long before his popular band Ben Folds 5 formed and put them to records. So eventually the band Majosha broke up and Ben went on to play a short stint with the band called Pots and Pans. He was on the drums in this band and played with Evan Olson and Britt Uzel, but that act only lasted about a month. After that, Folds got a publishing deal with Nashville music executive 
Scott Simon and moved to Nashville, Tennessee to pursue this endeavor in 1990. For a few years, he bounced around working on different projects, but ultimately moved on from that gig and moved his life to Montclair, New Jersey, where he began an acting career in theater troops in New York City. He's been quoted as saying that he enjoyed it so much that he at times thought about giving up on pursuing a career in music. But as fate would have it, in 1994, Folds moved back home to North Carolina, where his real breakthrough in music would happen. He formed the band Ben Folds Five, a three-member guitarless band, including himself on lead vocals, piano, and keyboards, Robert Sledge on the bass guitar, double bass, synthesizer, and backing vocals, and Darren Jesse on drums, percussion, backing vocals, and also assisting with songwriting. As we've mentioned, it was a rarity at the time to have a rock band without a guitarist, as so many bands of that time were formed around a a strong guitar and that true rock sound. But the trio of musicians decided to roll with their strengths, and let's just say it, it sort of worked out for them. In being questioned on the choice for the band's name, Ben has stated, I just thought it sounded a little better than Ben Folds 3. <laughs> <laughs> the band would quickly go on to achieve mainstream success in both the U.S. and the U.K. in the alternative, indie, and pop music scenes. Their first release was in 1995, self-titled Ben Folds 5. Their sophomore album came in 1997, titled Whatever and Ever Amen, with their most notable single, Brick, that gained a lot of radio airplay and definitely made them a mainstream household name amongst the pop music community. In 1998, they released a compilation album featuring outtakes from the previous records and select live tracks from over the years. This one was titled Naked Baby Photos. The following year, in 1999, they released the unauthorized biography of Reinhold Mesner with hit tracks such as the beautiful ballad Magic and the quirky song Army about a kid trying to find his purpose in life, contemplating the army, dropping out of college, and inevitably joining a band instead. After this album, the band took nearly a 10-year hiatus and pursued their own endeavors before ultimately getting back together to release another album in 2012 titled The Sound of the Life of the Mind. They followed that up in 2013 with the release of a live album titled Live. It's difficult to categorize the style of music of Ben Folds 5 as it was somewhat novel and perhaps groundbreaking at the time. In Ben's first book published in 2019, a memoir titled A Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. He describes his band's style of musical arrangement as brutish, which is kind of interesting. I had to look that up because I wasn't totally sure what that meant, but of course, deriving from the root word brute, uh, meaning uh, a savagely violent person or animal, I think there's probably a bit of sarcasm to that, but some of his songs are a bit blunt or, or upfront about some difficult elements of, of life or, or some trying times that people go through, as we'll talk about with, with some of the, the tracks on this album. He has also jokingly described Ben Folds 5 as punk rock for sissies, <laughs> which I think is kind of making fun of himself, but also 
describing his music the way other people might describe it, which he doesn't really care about, but probably thinks it's kind of silly that, that people would try to categorize what he's doing or compare it to an existing genre because obviously it was uh, rather unique and different and not supposed to be trying to be like anybody else. His songs are often melancholic and dramatic with deeply emotional lyrics that tell stories about a variety of characters, some real and others likely fictitious, with elements of humor, sarcasm, very honest moments, and even some harsh realities sprinkled in at times. In an interview with WPR's Beta, Ben Folds explained, The idea was not to serve the song because the songs had had lives before Ben Folds 5, and they hadn't been successful. I'd been playing those in little clubs by myself. I'd made demo tapes for years. It had all more or less been rejected, and we just kind of stumbled upon the power of beating the songs up. I think in the book, I used the image of the suitcase commercial where the monkeys are beating up the suitcases. If they can stand that, then they're good suitcases. And that was their quality control. We turned the vocal down. The distorted bass was louder sometimes than the vocals, and cymbals were bashing and I was playing wrong notes. It was really pretty ruckus stuff. But in the middle of it is a song that could be like a Broadway hit, Fold said. So the idea was just like, let's put that kid in a rough neighborhood and let him get beat up for a while. One of the things that Folds and his bandmates Sledge and Jesse learned during the early days was that if something didn't make sense, it could be worth exploring because it probably meant that nobody else was doing it. We just came to feel that anything that got resistance was, you know, advanced until apprehended, Fold said. Even a band like Queen had broken a lot of rules, but they did it in a way where you just really stressed the obvious. You know, you got a great singer, put that singer straight up front, hell, overdub them, make 15 of them, massive harmonies, now really exaggerate what they did. By the time we came along, you really needed to be looking at other things and exaggerating other things. You don't want to do what your parents did. In this book, Folds also shared his theory about a sense of discovery all songs should have. He says, a song or a performance should have a shared sense, even if it's an illusion, of discovery between the audience and the singer. The singer ought to feel like the third chorus ought to feel like something has been discovered. It can't be the same exact person, in my opinion. If you keep writing the same shit over and over again, even if you know you're really good at it, you lose that sense of discovery. I want to think that perhaps this sense of discovery is what may have urged Ben Folds to embark on his solo career so he could try something new, explore the music further, and see what else he could create. So that brings us up to the year 2001, where Ben released his first solo album that we're about to discuss today, Rock in the Suburbs, which was received very well by the musical community and critics, and is considered as one of his best works to date. He followed this up in 2002 with Ben Folds Live, a live album where he sings a lot of his hit tracks and shares many backstories to the songs. This one really gives you a feel for his stage presence while you're listening to the album. The following year, he released two extended playlists, one titled Speed Graphic and another Sunny 16. And then in 2004, he released a third EP titled Super D. 
In 2005, he released an album titled Songs for Silverman with the most notable track, Landed. In this one, you can really hear that Elton John influence coming out in the piano intro to the song. In 2006, he combined the songs from the previously mentioned three extended playlists that he released in a full-length album titled, in one word, Super Sunny Speed Graphic. And then two years later, in 2008, he released his final studio album as a solo artist, Way to Normal. Over the years, Ben has toured and performed with many popular acts, including the Counting Crows, who he went on tour with first as a solo artist in the early 2000s, Ben Queller, Guster, Weezer, Tori Amos, The Fray, The Bare Naked Ladies, and John Mayer. He has also performed with a number of symphony orchestras all around the U.S. and also in Australia. As I mentioned earlier, the band members of Ben Folds 5 eventually would go on to get back together and release another album, but before that, they had a reunion concert in 2008 that was the first time they performed in over 10 years. This was held at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They then went on to release that final studio album that I mentioned earlier, The Sound of the Life of the Mind, in 2012. In 2014, Folds premiered a commissioned piano concerto he composed with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra, which led to another album released in 2015 titled So There, which includes eight chamber pop songs and the piano concerto that was performed with the Nashville Symphony. Since May of 2017, Folds has been serving as the first artistic advisor to the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. A career musician with so many talents, Folds has been inducted into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame and has also received a star on the Music City Walk of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee. Although he spends most of his time these days working with the orchestra and producing music behind the scenes and collaborating with other artists, he did release a song of his own this past year that's worth a listen titled 2020. It describes the difficulty of living during the COVID-19 pandemic. You should check it out. But before you go and do that, let's jump back 20 years to perhaps a simpler time and dive into one of my all-time favorite albums that got Ben started on his solo career. This is Rock in the Suburbs. The first track is called Annie Waits. And so off track one of the things I think that stood out about this song to me is you have that sparse piano at the beginning but you also have kind of that digital sounding hand clap and then those beats that start around the 32nd mark they give it a little distinction between this and his prior work with Ben Folds 5 from a production standpoint 
Yeah, I made a comment about that too. You think it's a, a digital clap or is it an actual clap? It sounds like it's synthetic to me. And, and that's one of the things I think that he wanted to emphasize right away with this album being a little bit more produced. We'll get into it when we talk about the title track where he wanted to sort of ridiculously overproduce. Sure. But I think as a whole, even this this album does branch off a little bit from his prior work of being more just kind of piano driven. And this one does have a backdrop of some interesting production, which in the early 2000s was one of the things that people were doing a little bit more of as the computer age. Some of those little accents I think he found interesting and you can hear some of that to start this album off. That music really grabs your attention right away. It's catchy. And then the lyrics that follow, it only takes a few listens before you can start singing along. So the meaning behind this song, it sounds like you've got a woman that's waiting and has been waiting for a long time for somebody that she's got feelings for. But to her dismay, these feelings that she has is never reciprocated. It's always the same. And then the lyrics switch to Annie waits for the last time as if maybe this is her last chance or maybe she's giving up. I found that kind of interesting. And then the lyrics, the clock never stops, never stops, never waits. She's growing old, it's getting late. The clock never stops, never stops, never waits. She's growing old. And then to follow that up with Annie sees her dreams, Friday bingo, pigeons in the park. You know, she's almost aging herself. 20, 30 years all of a sudden where maybe her biological clock has expired and she's not going to fall in love and become a mother and have, have kids and have this fairy tale life that she's potentially envisioning and that she'll be left as this old, single, hopeless, romantic, playing bingo on Fridays and sitting in the park looking at pigeons because there's nobody there to be with her. So she's obviously, as a, I assume, younger individual, potentially teenager, being irrational about the fact that she'll never meet somebody, she'll never fall in love, but it really paints the picture and is probably an accurate representation of some of the thoughts that go through our heads when we're young and naive and not really thinking too clearly. Yeah, I like how he plays with the English language there on that, and he waits for the last time, and he says just the same as the last time in the first part of it when you say, she waits for the last time. It means this will never happen again. And then right. the second part, just the same as the last time, meaning the time prior. So exactly. last yeah. can have dual meaning there. And I, I've never considered that before until he put both of them in the same sentence. I thought that was interesting. when I was listening to it as well but yeah you're right it, it it adds to the fact that this is repetitive it's just like the last time and well maybe this is going to be the last time right because yeah. I'm, I'm fed up with everything feeling like the last time I really identified too with that line that says maybe he's been seriously hurt would that be worse kind of Oh, yeah. Your, your first thought of, like, he didn't show up is self-protective. Like, yeah. well, well, maybe he got hurt, so he's not standing me up. And, of course, immediately you're like, why would I even think that's a good thing? That's even worse to, to right, think of somebody yeah. being injured that I care about. But at least there'd be a good excuse for why he didn't call or show up. 
yeah, wrestling with which of those things do I feel better yeah. about him being injured yeah, right, or him yeah. standing me up. Yeah. But she cares about him, wants to be with him, so obviously she doesn't want him to be hurt. But that actually might be an okay outcome here because then I wouldn't be so hurt. You know, there's there's kind of that conundrum of of the whole idea. Yeah, I think it's a natural thing to feel and then you'd immediately feel guilty for having that feeling right after yeah exactly the song kind of takes a twist toward the end and we find out that the narrator maybe has feelings for annie but she doesn't even see it maybe she's too busy looking at somebody else or i want to think maybe she has feelings for this person as well but she's so wrapped up in her head and all these times that people have rejected her that maybe she's not even thinking it's possible and doesn't see that he has feelings for her but from his perspective she doesn't even know he exists yeah i found that to be the most interesting part of this song too because the whole time you kind of feel like it's a third person narrator painting this really sad picture of who annie is like you almost feel sorry for her and and then the last i mean it's a like a four minute song but it's not till that 353 mark when the words but not for me yeah yeah peppered in and then you realize that it's actually the narrator is actually an even sadder portrait of somebody waiting for this person who is waiting for someone else. Yeah, he says, Annie, I could be if we're still both lonely when we're old. You know, I, I could be that person that you're looking for. You know, I hadn't thought about it until right now as we're talking about this. I wonder if the narrator could have been a, a friend of Annie's, a close friend, somebody who's quote unquote in the friend zone. And maybe she was pouring her heart out to him. Nobody, nobody likes me. I, I can't find anybody. Nobody's paying attention. And maybe it's like not even on her radar that this good friend of hers, maybe a childhood friend, somebody she grew up with, friend of the family or something, could also potentially be a love interest. And maybe he doesn't really know how to, how to bridge that gap and cross that barrier and say, hey, I actually kind of like you. you know? Maybe she doesn't even see him as a potential candidate, but he's there and he's liking her and doesn't really know how to crossover from friends to something more than that yeah i think that very well could be I, I i it does feel like knowing that she's got feelings for somebody else just doesn't even feel like he can broach that conversation he just knows she's not waiting for him so yeah why bother right. even even saying that and and being even more pathetic yeah i'd like to i'd like to think now that the narrator probably is somebody who's in annie's life to some degree and not somebody in her class who's has the hots for her like she has for other people and that they're unaware of each other's existence i'd like to think that maybe the narrator has been there and understands her and that she knows him on some level but that she do doesn't see him as a, a potential candidate and he's not sure how to express his feelings for her when you were playing the clip earlier here for us to get this song fresh in our heads i, I had this thought and i'm not sure if this was intentional but when you listen to and so Annie waits, Annie waits, Annie waits. It also kind of sounds like, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. I wonder if that's sort of a play on words and if he chose the word Annie. And so, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. It almost kind of sounds the same. So she's waiting and he's waiting too, maybe. That's really interesting. I didn't consider that. And actually, it's yeah. odd that you mentioned that and, and odd that I didn't consider it because I was going to say back to knowing this album growing up and not having the lyric sheet in front of me, I actually thought that that's what I did too. he was saying yeah. in this song. Yeah, yeah, like I had this flashback when you, when you were playing yeah. that song. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, I used to sing this as and he waits and he waits before I actually read the lyrics. Yeah, so, yeah. 
maybe maybe that was supposed to be you know something kind of subliminal there <laughs> if it wasn't intentional that's really interesting we either subliminally kind of put that in because of the meaning behind it or it's just an interesting coincidence yeah i, I find that to be super interesting because yeah i didn't really think about it until you said it but i did used to think the song said and he waits yeah yeah probably i probably heard the song before i even knew the title of the song otherwise mm-hmm. obviously i would think the focal point was annie that she's the main character but maybe that's more of a distraction and the the main characters her friend uh this individual that is attracted to her and he's seeing this long repetitive story that annie keeps telling of having feelings for people that reject her that aren't interested in her and how she's longing for love and nobody wants to be with her yet here's the friend that would only love to be in that role but doesn't really know himself how to break through that barrier part where he says Annie I could be if we're still lonely when we're old I was thinking about that too when you said maybe he's somebody that actually knows her and is sort of friend zoned by her that's the type of kind of safe way of mentioning somehow halfway that you're interested in the person right. without actually saying it so you're not so vulnerable I actually remember yeah, yeah, yeah. doing something like that in high school kind of just sort of te- like testing the waters with somebody being like yeah it's like okay let's make a pact exactly you know, if, if, if we're if both still are, single right. 10 years from now <laughs> did you ever do that with anybody probably I, I don't know I don't I don't think I had any super close female friends that I that I also had feelings for where that would have come up but certainly no times of of that being the case with with other friends or that that being commonplace for people to do that of course i did do that at one point actually i i was a high schooler kind of like i don't think i really actively had a crush on this girl but it was somebody that i was like really good friends with that i kind of like sort of thought of that like i wonder if i could be into her or like maybe maybe i do like sometimes you kind of have the feelings like maybe i am into this person jokingly but kind of halfway sort of like seeing how she would take it saying like how about if we're both 40 and single we get married or something like that she's like okay that's a deal and like part of me was like i don't know i might kind of (laughs) revisit this right so you you can get their their genuine reaction to that but but it's also safe for you to escape and be like i'm just playing around yeah the type (laughs) of games you play when you're junior high high school yeah yeah figuring that stuff out yep well man that's cool we we really found a lot of unique parts of this song that apply to everyday life and growing up as a kid well speaking of kids should we move on to track two yeah let's do that let's move on to track two and meet a couple other high school characters the song is titled Zach and Sarah Sarah spelled without an H was getting bored on a PV amp in 1984 while Zach without a C fun track as well we, we talked about how ben likes to incorporate a lot of characters in his songs and and tell stories 
I think Trevor, you you sent me a list of the number of names that show up in this album, and I'm pretty sure it was double digits by the end of it. But here we meet Zach and Sarah, a couple at a guitar store, probably at Zach's request, wanting to go check out some instruments. And as he's looking through the guitars, getting lost in that, calling his dad, potentially asking for money or permission to buy this new instrument, Sarah is off having a conversation with the salesman, and they're completely disconnected or in different worlds, you could say, at the time. Yeah, this is definitely the one that I had in mind when you were talking about the history, and I was saying that a lot of oftentimes he writes songs that kind of sound happier, poppy, and then you then you dive a little bit deeper into the words and realize there's something a little bit dark lurking underneath. Again, this being an album that was kind of at an interesting transitionary period between when I might purchase a physical copy and then have a digital copy. This is one that when I put on in the car and didn't have the words to, I just thought this was sort of a fun little love story about two young kids, Zach and Sarah, and I didn't really pay attention. Even if I knew the words, I really wasn't noticing the interesting backstory or, or what was going on underneath all that. And yeah, on the surface level, for Zach anyway, who doesn't see it any other way, he's just really showing Sarah something she's so interested in. He He's there in this guitar shop playing the guitar. It's all about him. He's got his instrument. He's like, here, you listen. And at the end of the song, she's clapping for him. And this little ride that she takes in between the time he starts the song and ends the song is He's completely oblivious to. And when Zach finished Sarah's song, Sarah what an interesting thing to write a song about. I think it's a common scenario in that especially high school boys have no idea how to impress a woman. Or and, understand. Or understand. <laughs> and this is a common scenario in that way, but super unique in the things that this character Sarah can do. I think I'd have to second what you said about not really understanding the complexity of the lyrics and the deeper meaning. I think that's partially because you get hooked on the repetitive Zach and Sarah that keeps coming out in the song. And then also the music is a little trippy in the background and there's that. And so you hear that and you start to kind of zone out and it's easy to just block out the verses when Ben is telling the actual story, that's that's the real meaning of the song right there. And you're kind of still in your head, just singing along and, and uh, digesting the music. And so by the end of it, that's what leaves the impression. So unless you have the lyrics in front of you, you're probably not you know honed in on trying to figure it out because it just sounds like another catchy pop song. Yeah, I didn't really think about it until you were talking about that. But in a way, I was sort of Zach as I'm listening to this song. You know, I yeah, was like, yeah, a, right, yeah a high school kid just in your head zoned out on the music yeah i really wasn't paying attention to sarah either yeah (laughs) often sarah would have spells if she lost time she saw the future she heard voices from inside the kind of voices she would soon learn to deny because at home they got her smacked but as the lyrics go Often Sarah would have spells where she lost time. She saw the future. She heard voices from inside, the kind of voices she would soon learn to deny because at home they got her smacked. That's a lot uh, to unpack right there. I mean, either from Sarah's perspective or maybe outsiders, she has 
supernatural powers and claims to be able to see the future or perhaps there's some subtleties there alluding to some type of condition that she might have schizophrenia or something else that might lead to hallucinations or hearing voices or whatever it may be her behavior is leading to what we'd presume would be some type of physical abuse um, with the line because at home it got her smacked you know all these visions or stories that she would tell people at the very least it got her shut down made fun of it led to something negative so she learned to just kind of keep those things to herself over the years but maybe she felt some sort of comfort or safety with the salesman and that he wasn't somebody close to her and she could kind of open up and and uh, explore some of these ideas or she just goes off the rails when this happens and whoever ends up in her crosshairs gets the blunt of her manic visions yeah yeah definitely and those visions those visions she's having are really interesting i i guess it sounds like she's because it says they're in a guitar shop in 1984 and so it sounds like her vision isn't of the future it'd be the future to her but it sounds almost more like the vision of the present 2001 because she's describing kind of like a rave scene did you pick up on that i don't know if i did she talks about like pale faces and the beats to the music oh right yeah and the the visions of pills that put you in a loving trance yeah so, so that all white about... boys can dance definitely right, yeah. tends to be a little bit more um, some type of enhancement probably from drugs rave party especially or something. in the you know starting in europe at the time mm-hmm. right yep so definitely a lot of white kids doing these raves i don't know why ben chose that as her vision but something that would have been going on in 2001 and mm-hmm. and as you said all, all all the time she's talking about these borderline out, outlandish things to the salesman zach is completely clueless focus on the guitar probably didn't even hear the conversation it's just like white noise in the background not even registering to him because He's focused on the guitar and he was on, on, on the phone with his dad for a while. And, you know, he, he probably thinks she's just there in support of him. And, you know, eventually he plays this song. I don't know if that happens in the guitar store or if that's something later at home, but clearly they have a song or something. Maybe, maybe it's their song and something that he plays for her a lot. And he says, Hey, let's see how it sounds on this new guitar or something. And and she's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll listen. And she's still having her conversation. So they're in separate worlds and they're not, really jiving too well and then as you said you know sarah claps at the end of the song like oh yeah cool good job but (laughs) she really doesn't care either (laughs) neither one of them really cares about what the other person is like super focused on at the time yeah or they just don't know how to connect and you think of like high school relationship that's about as close to intimacy as you can get is (laughs) i'll play play this song and that that'll really get you yeah and he just completely misses the fact that she's not even present when he's on the phone with his dad or maybe even throughout the entire song he's over there with his eyes closed just jamming out while she's screaming <laughs> at the cashier and, and she he misses all of that what'd you think yeah. of after she screams all that stuff at the salesman the parenthetical asshole after all of that Who who's saying that or you know i that's the part i wasn't super clear on i, I don't know I don't, I don't think i picked up on that either could picture it either way like her just you know, mad at everybody for not seeing clearly like 
she supposedly could and her kind of walking away saying that to them or her walking away and the salesman looking at her going, what's up with that asshole? I wasn't sure where that was supposed to be. Yeah, or her, I, or her kind of saying it to Zach of just like, you don't even get me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I would, I would guess it's the latter that yeah. she's speaking out against those people, you know, that have squashed these ideas or don't want to listen to some of her visions or, or theories or whatever it may be, you know, and, and I mentioned earlier, maybe it's some type of psychological disorder or something that's leaving, leading to these delusions or hallucinations, or, or maybe Sarah's just a, a really fascinating person and she's thinking beyond her years outside the box. I mean, if, if she's young, I don't know how old, but preteen or teenager, you know, sometimes they have bizarre thoughts and ideas and ramble and stories don't make sense and stuff. So maybe this is just a super curious individual and the stories told in this song are just supposed to represent that she often goes on tangents talking about random things to the point that people are just like okay yeah Sarah whatever you know like go on we've heard this stuff before and they're all kind of pushing her down or squashing these ideas and so eventually she's like well I guess if people don't want to listen to me I'm not even going to share them but she would hope that her boyfriend Zach would would at least care and clearly he doesn't either he's missing out on it so she's like whatever asshole you know yeah yeah. (laughs) so I'm not sure but it's kind of cool how Ben throws those subtle words into different songs where it's almost like an afterthought or it's not part of the song but he kind of throws it in there yeah uh, just to enhance the story and speaking of subtle i was going to ask you this i was reading along to lyrics on lyric genius site and there it says zach with no c like and it puts the letter c but i read other lyrics that said zach with no c like s-e-e kind of indicating like that he's somebody that doesn't see what she's going through Oh. And I wondered if when you were reading the lyrics, if wherever you were reading them, if it said S-E-E or letter C, and if you thought of that. I think I was on Genius too, but I okay. didn't yeah. make a note of that. Yeah, I don't know. Would would there be something to the fact that he said Sarah spelled without an H then as well? Would that H symbolize something? I don't know about the H part, but then the, the spell, the word, because um, it says often... Sarah would have spells, and you could think of spells as like oh, sure. episodes, yeah. but also like, you know, a magic spell. And then the, even though it's not direct, kind of alluding back to the spelling of things spelling being of different names. and just kind of making right. the song a little bit more um, complete in that way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought of H with hallucinations and maybe something there. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Without an H wouldn't make sense because she's actually having yeah. them and unless they're not hallucinations unless that's how other people are interpreting them but to her they're they're real i don't know well should we go on to track three yeah this is a, a great song the first true ballad uh, you could say for this album track three is titled still fighting it As you can imagine, this one hits me pretty hard right now, talking about the birth of his son and having what will be a seven-month-old next week. And this song was written about his son, Louis, who is actually a twin. He has a daughter as well and wrote a song about her on a future album. But this one is about his son and his relationship with him 
Yeah, Lewis would have been two years old when this album was released. So I'm not sure when the song was written. It could have been closer to his birth, but certainly it was during a, a time that Ben's life was changing for obvious reasons, as you know, Trevor, being a new father as well. Maybe, at least as this song alludes to, the potential burden that comes with that as well and the pressure to make sure that this person grows up with all the good stuff of life and hopefully less of the bad stuff maybe that you had to go through or that you're still going through today. This song kind of wrestles with the idea of life always presenting new challenges even as an adult and that it's never really complete but there's also some connection to childhood and youth and that although parents and kids have clearly different roles in each other's lives their experiences of dealing with the day-to-day are kind of more similar than they are different and there's this circle of highs and lows and ups and downs that everybody goes through while developing but then also as an adult reflecting on that process it's it's still changing you and and you're still you're fighting it Yeah, I think the line that hit me the most, oddly enough, is the it's so weird to be back here part. And I think that's what I find as being a new dad is strange. The most strange is because you think of it as a separate experience being a father. You know, you've gone through the childhood part. Now you're the dad part and and they're separate worlds. But it's actually more like that, at least in my limited experience here of feeling like you're kind of reliving it. It's so weird to be back here, I think, is the part that's the most jarring in the song and probably the most surprising. I'm really surprised to be back here, and I think it's going to be more so when he starts having experiences and memories that I have. Obviously, I don't remember being six months old, but when he's, you know, in grade school or or certainly high school, as we've talked about experiences that we've had, I think it's going to be so weird to be back there and looking at it from a different lens and having perspective and feeling like, oh, I understand that this is going to pass and this is no big deal. But now you're experiencing it through them and knowing that they can't have that perspective and, and caring and loving them and being back there and feeling all those those same things. I think that's the part that stands out the most to me in the song and, and one of the things that's really been surprising being a new father. like the opening lyrics as well and the the musical transition with the tempo change at the start of the track was really cool how it sort of slows the pace you can tell it's a ballad right away and it it almost sets the mood that this is about to be a more serious message not to take anything away from the first two tracks but this is clearly more personal uh, to ben being that it's about his son and it's a, a deep meaning that everybody can relate to, whether that's somebody who's simply growing up and thinking about their relationship with one of their parents or somebody who has become a parent themselves and reflecting on this whole journey. But those opening lyrics, good morning, son, I am a bird wearing a brown polyester shirt. Good morning, son, I am a bird wearing a brown polyester I love that part. You know, I am a bird. He's basically saying, I know how to fly. I've I've spread my wings, so to speak, as people would often say when somebody's getting to the point of leaving their, their parents' household. 
he's saying good morning to his son and acknowledging that he is that person, but then he follows it up with he's wearing a brown polyester shirt. I, I read into that and l looked up the potential meaning behind that and read that the color brown represents strength and reliability, which is what a parent should be to their child. But there's also this irony that it's a polyester shirt, which is kind of a cheap, somewhat fragile material. From the beginning of the song, it's painted the picture that there's this individual who has spread their wings and gone off on their own. They've become a parent and they have to embrace this role now of being the strong, reliable person who can foster this child and and show them the way, so to speak. But they're not totally put together themselves either. There's st still some fragility to their life and they're still working through some things and developing and, and learning and, and growing and experiencing things in their own life while they're also now responsible for somebody else's. That's interesting. I didn't read into the color or, or the fabric even, like you mentioned. I just thought of it as the quintessential picture of a dad, you know, like just this oh. brown polyester <laughs> shirt. Our and, dads, maybe, but yeah, not you, I hope. I mean, the more time that goes by, the more dad-like I start to for, start, for better start dream, for worse, dreaming of polyester. Start to you? start to look start to look a little bit more that way. I think. And I have to say, Ben Folds looks like a dad. Like even at the time of this album, I just feel like if you had a picture of what suburban dad looks like, I feel like Ben Folds just kind of looks the part. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. And as a dad, I don't mean that as an insult. That's an ultimate, <laughs> ultimate compliment. I really liked, too, of course, the final part of the chorus, saying you're so much like me and then ending it with I'm sorry. You envision having a kid, and in some ways you think of that as a positive of having somebody that's just like you, a little you. But what you notice the most about yourself, both before and after you have a kid, I think is your flaws. And to see that in yourself is hard. But I imagine to see that in somebody else, the next generation, almost hurts even a little bit more mm -hmm. because you know that even after you're not around, some of your shortcomings are going to persist in the world. That almost puts another meaning to the, the lyrics that precede that line you mentioned early about it. He says, it hurts to grow up, but everybody does. It's so weird to be back here. For him, reflecting on his life, his childhood, saying it, it hurts to grow up. It, it hurt for him to, to grow up and go through what he experienced, but everybody does. And so now he's saying, it's, it's weird to be back at this place now where I'm looking at my son who will likely go through a lot of the things that I did and he's going to have to grow up, but everybody does. So maybe that line, it hurts to grow up is now speaking to him even more because it's, it's going to hurt him to see his son grow up at times. You know, he's going to have to kind of relive that hurt as well. Exactly. And in some ways it almost hurts double because you know, you can't fix it. And that's where I thought the earlier line, he says, it's okay. You don't have to pay. I've got all the change. I mean, of course, on the surface level, I've got the money to pay for this, but I think I've got all the change really is exemplifying exactly what you're saying is I'm the one that's really, you know, you're going through all these changes in the moment, but in the way I'm experiencing on an even deeper level because I'm the mm -hmm. one that's having to recognize and adapt to carrying some of these things that you're going through. Yeah, and that maybe there's another element to that saying that he intends to, to shoulder the weight of that a little bit more, that he knows about the changes from his experiences and he's prepared to be there. It's okay. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay the price I did potentially for maybe mistakes that he had made that 
that he knows about the changes and he's got answers or the blueprint to potentially lay things out or hopefully lay things out and make it a little bit more of a smooth ride. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's more accurately said. You don't have to pay. I've got all the changes. Like, I'll take this for you. Let me yeah, let me try to see right, if yeah, I can handle yeah. this for you, which yep. is also an interesting struggle because I think my very first thought, you know, having my son is I just want to sh- shelter him from all pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then immediately recognizing that that's in some ways the worst thing I could do to to completely shelter him from sure. all experiences of pain and just knowing that part of what he needs is to go through some of that and that's that's painful for me to think about the fact that I need to let him have some of those experiences that being a good dad means to allow and expect some of that and that's that's going to be hard it's Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't think there's a, a blueprint for doing that necessarily. You have to protect them from harm and steer them in the right direction. But you don't want to have your hands gripped so tightly on the wheel that they're not able to go their own way and make make their own decisions and learn for themselves. Something else along those lines that I thought was interesting. Another point to make. He says the roast beef combo is only nine ninety five. So what we were saying about him having all the change, he's got the money, but that also potentially representing the blueprint to help his son through his developmental years. He's also acknowledging the fact that he doesn't have it all figured out and it's not silver platter because he uses the word change. He doesn't say, I got all the bills, you know, I, I, I got some change. And even though he wants to provide and he's saying, don't worry, I, I, you don't have to pay, I can, I can do this for you. He's also hinting at getting something kind of cheap. He's saying like, hey, I'm going to do as much as I can, but I'm also accepting the fact that I don't have it all figured out either. Yeah, I think there's something to be said in that simplicity there. I mean, it is, does just feel like a portrait of a dad just trying to make it. You mentioned the cheap polyester. That's why dads are wearing those things. That's why moms have spit up on their shirt and stuff. They're just <laughs> trying to make it day to day. And and this is him hanging out with his son, but also just trying to meet his needs and just like, all right, we got to get some food in him. We got to. And if you watch the music video, it's kind of stuff like that. He's just sort of carrying him around. There's a part where the kid's crying and he's trying to help him with something and it it begins and ends the day him just kind of picking his son up and taking him from place to place and Mm -hmm. i think that is a little just snapshot of the day in the life of a dad brown polyester shirt trying to dig some coins out of your pocket to get some food in your kid and and get him through the day without crying too much yeah I think that's one of the things that I really like about Ben Fold's writing too. I I mentioned that it's not really layered and up for interpretation so much as maybe some of the artists or you know you wouldn't really call it necessarily poetry as much as it is, as it is just you know plainly stated words but they're very very carefully selected I think. I think there's a lot of meaning even even though there's not a lot of cryptic elements to the words. In a, another form of expression in art in a, in a movie, one of the type of movies that make me tear up the most or get emotional the most would be like a Pixar movie. It's simple enough for kids to understand. You go watch, you know, the movie Up, for instance, is a movie that just like makes me ball at the beginning, that first 10 minutes with a couple. And, and it's real simple, uh, but there's something about how they do it that appeals both to the children and to the adults. And I, I think that's something that Ben Folds does a really good job. It just reminds me of that type of expression. That's a really great comparison and a great parallel to what we're 
describing with his music where the casual listener of Ben Folds would be comparable to the child watching the movie kind of like the child that is glued to the tv watching the film but doesn't really understand the deeper meanings doesn't pick up on all the subtleties that we as adults do ben folds does that in a way where it's appealing to both audiences regardless of whether you're people like us who want that extra layer or you're somebody who is happy with the surface which is a good sounding catchy pop song that's fun to sing along to that's enjoyable that most people want to listen to and either is fine but it's cool that ben is able to do both i was thinking of it too we we are experiencing this music now kind of from both sides of it we had the childhood experience right and now here we are as adults looking at it in a different way and to quote the song it's so weird to be back here you know looking at it in a different from a different (laughs) perspective very nice to this song here I wanted to mention what might be my favorite part of the song it kind of ties everything together and it gives you a great visual for the future he says 20 years from now maybe we'll both sit down and have a few beers and I can tell you about today and how I picked you up and everything changed so obviously referring to the day that he was born and how having him in his arms changed everything but then to have the foresight of 20 years later They'll sit down and have a few beers and then maybe he'll be able to share some things with him that he was not able to along the way or they'll be able to reflect on that journey together. They'll both be quote unquote men or adults and be able to sit down eye to eye on the same level or at least a closer level than let's say a 30 year old father and their firstborn child versus a 50 year old dad and their 20 year old son. They're going to be connecting a little bit better because that 20 year old now has gone through that experience of growing up and understands life a little bit more and now they can sit down have a heart to heart man to man reflect on that journey that's right and you and i were texting about this realizing this would be 20 years from now you know this album is exactly 20 years old yeah exactly when this song was written but relatively speaking this is almost exactly that date and i wonder if him and louis have sat down and had those those beers and if he's thought about this this song you know within in this year um with that yeah in mind. i mean i i hope so that that has to be a special thing for them to reflect on think about louis would be 22 years old today so, right. so i hope they have as yeah. well and reflected on the past 20 years and talked about life and all the good the bad the in-betweens that's really cool. Yeah. What a, what a special thing to have if you were his son to be able to listen to and think about and then actually sit down and do that 20 years later. One more thing I wanted to mention about this song before we move on is, is the bridge. And it alludes to this foresight of the future as well. The lyrics go, you'll try and try and one day you'll fly away from me. basically comes full circle to the beginning of the song with the narrator Ben saying good morning son I am a bird so he's flown away from his parents and one day his son will fly away from him and I 
I think that really sums up the essence of this song that the narrator was once a child. He had to go through all this to eventually become a bird, spread his wings and fly away, leave his house, start his life, and then eventually to become a parent and knowing that his son will go through the exact same thing and then eventually he'll leave and he'll move on. And there's this sense of urgency where, man, I have 20 years to make my mark on this child. So, you know, it's, it's like a good way of speaking to the fact that life moves really quickly from childhood to adulthood to, to fatherhood and that it all kind of connects from one generation to the next. I think that's well said. And this is one in contrast to the prior song that the, I think the sound of the musically and lyrically, this one does really mesh together. So I think you get the feeling and emotion of these oh, yeah. words. And then even on the buildup of the chorus where it picks up a little bit, that's where he's wrestling with the fact that he knows he's still fighting it. These things are going to repeat. So I liked how this one really does fit musically and lyrically together. This was my favorite song on the album, probably for obvious reasons with what I'm going through right now, but I kind of think I would have thought that anyway. I just think it's well done, brilliantly written, and just evokes that emotion. So this was my favorite. You know, most of my favorites come from this album and a few from some others, but it's, it's definitely up there. What a great song. So much like me, I'm sorry. Well, should we move on to track four? Yeah, I'm ready. This is a great song, too, and this is one that I think you appropriately said is underrated. This song is called Gone. I like this one lyrically. I think the reason I mentioned the word underrated, of course, I don't know how you decide which songs are rated higher than others, but this is one that I don't think got a lot of uh, attention necessarily at the time this album was released. But the reason I mentioned this being an underrated song is musically, uh, especially. I just think it's really, really amazing the way that he kind of weaves in some of that 60s doo-wop and all the the bop bop ahs and the background vocals. And again, this is one that really grew on me as we listened and dissected this album again here. Yeah, I would have to agree. I really like the music on this song and the vocals, I think, aside from the lyrics, are also underrated as well. I think Ben showcases some of his vocal abilities, although that's probably not something he's extremely known for. There are some times in this song where, where he really sings, and it's a pretty sound. I also like it from a production standpoint, those background vocals on about the 130 mark that just go, gone, 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 and they're kind of panning left and right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. So the song is about presumably uh, an individual who has recently broken up with a, a significant other, and they haven't quite got over them yet. So they decide to sit down and write, whether that's writing a song or writing a note. And in this note, they say, I, I thought I'd write. I, I thought I'd let you know. I finally let you go. I hope you find some time to drop a note. But if you won't, I'll consider you gone. And I hope you find some time to drop a note. But if you won't, 
lines are a bit conflicting in my opinion because he says, hey, I just wanted to write and let you know that I've I finally let you go. I've, I've moved on, so to speak. But he follows it up with, I hope you find the time to drop a note. You know, so it sounds like there's still maybe a little bit of hope that they could get back together. But he's just saying, and I want to let you know I've moved on. I'm doing fine. You get the sense that this this person, by the end of the song at least, has not totally moved on from this person and they assume the other one has. And and so they're writing a note to let them know they're doing okay. But you know, it sure would be nice if you send me a note too. But you know, if you don't, then I'll consider you gone. Like then you'll really, really be gone if you don't you know, uh, reach out to me like I'm doing to you. And then he follows it up by saying, I know that you went straight to someone else while I worked through all this shit here by myself. It's transitioning to this has been easy for you. And, and here I am dealing with all this stuff. And, you know, almost like planting the seed. Hey, you should feel sorry for me. I haven't moved on yet. I'm I'm still here. Maybe there's still a, a, a spark or, or something left um, that it's not totally over. Trying to convince himself that it's okay to consider her gone and move on if she doesn't reach back out to him. I know that you went straight to someone else While I work through all this shit here by myself And I think that you should spend some time alone But if you won't Then you won't But he's not clearly over her because later in the song it says the days go on, the lights go off and on, and nothing really matters when you're gone. So he's having a hard time. He hasn't he hasn't totally moved on yet. Exactly. I think he's kind of hiding this from himself in a way and also trying to disguise it for her so that he can kind of shield himself from any vulnerability but still trying to find a way to sort of backdoor reach out and see if she might still be into him. So it's yeah, almost like he's taken the high road. Exactly where what I was trying to say. Very, yeah, very well yeah. said. I, I, <laughs> nice I, think, I think you got the same thing I got out of it, though, where it's like the beginning he's writing to kind of, you know, show her that, hey, I've moved on. I just wanted to let you know I don't even care anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the line about showing that he really took the, the high road when they broke up. You know, I went through all the shit and you just moved on to somebody else. So. I've clearly processed this and done the mature thing to move on from you. And I think you should do that too. You should probably spend some time alone as well because, you know, I've really learned a lot from my experiences, things that you didn't let yourself go through. But really what he's trying to do is reach out to see if maybe he still got a shot with her because I don't think he, he has moved on. So I think that was the, the tricky and unique thing about this is it's disguised as somebody kind of showcasing how he's done all the mature things to actually move on when he clearly hasn't. Yeah. And maybe by saying, I've spent a lot of time dealing with all this stuff in myself, you should do the same. Sure. Like you said, he could be saying it's done good for him and maybe she should take some time to reflect. He could also kind of sneakily be saying you should spend some time by yourself too. So you can feel what I've been going through. And if you did, then you would probably be sympathetic and maybe reach back out or at least help me find closure in this situation. I mean, if he had totally moved on, he wouldn't need to reach out to her unless it was to drop some final thoughts in a note or something, but he needs something. He's not happy with how things ended. Yeah. And as a little side benefit to that, if, if you really took the time and process things and spend some time alone, that means you'd have to break up with that guy to do it. Right. Yeah. It's a way to <laughs> kind of say you should dump that dude. So that way you're not vulnerably saying and, and, try to pursue things with me again you know he's kind of finding ways to shield himself from Mm -hmm. being vulnerable and saying what he actually wants to say which is i miss you i wish you were with me instead yeah 
definitely. And I, you get the sense that maybe even he doesn't recognize that about himself. Like he's not only shielding that from her, but he's also like tricking himself into actually thinking that he's doing it from a way that shields himself from his own emotions. He doesn't want to mm-hmm. admit he really misses her. Right. Yeah, exactly. Musically, I, I mentioned that Ben has really great vocals on this song. It, it seems like he put a little more thought or care and concern into the vocal sound of it compared to maybe some of the other tracks. We definitely have to highlight that bridge. Man, that's incredible. I love that part where he says, I wake up in the night all alone and it's all right. The chemicals are wearing off since you've been gone. Such a beautiful part of that song, incredible sound. love that part too and then just how the chorus builds with those background vocals every oh every yeah. time because it at the beginning it's just if you don't then you won't but by the end he's got that background yeah if you don't if baby you don't, if no, you don't no you won't no you won't yeah that's the part that just made it for me i was thinking during this song that i think brian wilson would have approved of this one this, this oh, was yeah. a, a really cool That, that got me thinking when, when uh, I was listening to that part a little more intently. This entire song would be perfect for a, a multi-part large choir. I wish I could flash back to high school and go to my choir director with this song and be like, we got to do this, you know? Yeah, because that, that would have been incredible. Yeah, yeah. This, this one was probably the biggest grower for me. Yeah, it's a really great track. Speaking of great tracks, should we move on to what I think you mentioned as being your favorite? Yeah, totally. This is... Hands down, my favorite track on the album. It's always hit me in a way uh, for some reason from from the first time I, I heard it to today and dissecting the lyrics and really looking at all the different elements and angles that you could interpret the song. Track five is titled Fred Jones, Part Two. 25 years he's worked at the paper A man's here to take it great introduction to this one i know we were texting back and forth a lot of time about this song with this being your favorite one of the things that we had talked about or asked each other is what we thought the meaning behind part two would be because there isn't actually a song called fred jones part one in ben's discography and i think you and i were just thinking maybe part two is this character's sort of second act this song details somebody that is nearing retirement age but comes to that place unexpectedly against his own choosing is that kind of ultimately what you thought too is the part two is just the second part of this person's life yeah i think so i always thought there was maybe a, a fred jones part one in existence but i i think over time as i matured as a listener of this song i realized that part two was basically 
symbolizing chapter two or the next stage of Fred's life. He's spent 25 years working for the newspaper. So in a sense, that has been his life. Obviously, there was, there was a childhood and, and maybe he became a father and, and potentially there were those chapters. But once you're into the working world, you know, after a certain number of years, it feels like that's, that's kind of a part of you. That's who you are. You're the, the person that gets up every morning and puts on the shirt and tie and goes to work and, and does the thing you've done repetitively day after day. And all of a sudden that stops. And like you said, it's rather abrupt and unexpected. We should probably mention that there is a Ben Folds 5 song with the character name Fred Jones. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was released prior to this. That one is titled Cigarette. And I believe it was on their second album, Whatever and Ever Amen. It was. And I, I remember we were texting back and forth on that. Me being, I thought, very familiar with that album because, again, I owned it. And I'll have to listen again, but I don't even remember that song i know it was a very short little kind of interlude between other songs and but i just somehow it didn't stand out to me yeah it was it was a really short song it was actually one really long run-on sentence and ben has mentioned that that was one of the reasons why he he picked it he saw this newspaper clipping that talked about uh, a man who was really worn down well i can read the lyrics here it's not a very long song fred jones was worn down from caring for his often screaming and crying wife during the day, but he couldn't sleep at night for fear that she and a stupor from the drugs that didn't even ease the pain would set the house on blaze with a cigarette. It's one really long sentence, and, and Ben said that hit him when he, he read that because of the, the seriousness of, of what was stated there, but that he also thought it was a really interesting run-on sentence, and he, he decided to work it into a song. So when you listen to the song, it sounds a lot longer because Ben sings it in a, a slow manner, and, and there's pauses and, and, and musical changes and whatnot. But I believe this story goes that this was taken from a newspaper clipping that was talking about somebody filing for divorce or something along those lines, and perhaps that's been misconstrued over the years. I tried to find those words, but it's been so long, there's nothing out there on that. The cigarette song, you're saying. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything uh, to support that it was based on true facts. Yeah. But I have read that Ben says that it was, so I, I believe that part of it, but... I don't see any connection That's what I was gonna say, between yeah. that as Fred Jones part one and what we're about to discuss here as Fred Jones yeah. part two, except for the, the same name. Right. I'd be I'd be curious to hear somebody's interpretation of how that might connect with the meaning or message behind Fred Jones part two on this album. But certainly worth noting that that character was in existence and Ben decided to use him here, so perhaps there is some connection. Right. So as this song goes, there's an awkward young shadow that waits in the hall. It says Fred Jones has cleared all his things and he's put them in boxes. So you get the sense that he's, as we mentioned, being laid off against his will. And that awkward young shadow perhaps being maybe they're downsizing and they're bringing in the next generation that maybe can do something that he can. He's getting pushed out because he's sort of irrelevant yeah, based yeah, on yeah. his age or his Definitely, experience yeah. level that up to this point for 25 years has served them that no longer, no longer does. Fred sits alone at his desk in the dark. There's an awkward young shadow that waits in the Yeah, it's it's awkward in the sense that he's being replaced, for one, but the fact that it's a young shadow, that's even more awkward because here he is with twenty five years of experience doing whatever he's doing for the newspaper. Maybe it's writing stories and maybe he's too old to be in tune with 
what's happening in the world and the newspaper has decided to take a different direction and bring in more youthful talent that has a different perspective and that they're in a roundabout way saying sorry fred you're not relevant anymore and we have to let you go and i'm sorry mr jones it's Which would be a tough pill to swallow, losing your job, but then to know that you're being replaced by somebody who in your eyes is probably just a kid and doesn't have any life experience, doesn't really know what they're doing. And you've, you've poured your heart and soul into this for 25 years, and now all of a sudden, that's it, you know? Maybe you were 10, 15, 20 years from retirement, and you expected to continue and leave a legacy. You thought you were admired, respected, at least appreciated. And as it turns out, you know, you don't even really matter like a runaway train where the passengers change they don't change anything you get off someone yeah there's a part later in the song where it uses the analogy of a train where basically life or the train just keeps going there's there's never a stop it's on a track it's moving and passengers get on and off without really yeah much notice you know yeah. with the with Going back to the office, there's no party, there's no song, because the day is just a day like any other day has started. So you know those things being being yep. similar, and even though this song is about the end of his job, you almost get the feeling with the shadow in the dark and and that repeating line, "I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, it's time." It's it, almost like a grim reaper type of thing, something a shadow waiting in the in the dark, and and then just somebody kind of saying, "It's time." Mm-hmm. The, the end yeah. of your life beginning like, and ending like his time has expired right you know he's he's done yep. that was it that that's all they really needed from him and we're going to let you move on now but to fred that's probably not what what he was expecting or how he had envisioned his life as you mentioned with the the train there's the line no one is left here that knows my first name you no know, and, and before that you mentioned there was no party there were no songs because today is just a day like the day that he he started no one is left here that knows his first name so that's basically saying when when fred started 25 years ago when he was that new person at the job site nobody knew him and 25 years later maybe he's the last of his generation of people that work for the newspaper maybe they've been slowly letting everybody go and fred was the one they kept and now there's nobody there who even knows his first name, nobody who really knows his significance to the newspaper. With that company, with everything he's done over the past 25 years, the people who truly respected and admired him and, and could speak on his value have either been let go or moved on themselves. And now it kind of feels like the day he started where he looks around and he doesn't even recognize anybody, nobody knows him. And, you know, it's it's his time to move on and life keeps going the train doesn't stop somebody else is going to jump back on he's forced to get off but there's somebody to replace him so i think it's really a gut check for him where he's realizing that maybe he wasn't as important as he thought uh, people viewed him as yeah or at the very least the thing that made him important is no longer relevant i want to jump back to an earlier verse that you were talking about where he says he's cleared all his things and he's, he's put them in boxes things that remind him life has been good. And if you read the lyrics, life has been good is written in quotes in quotation marks around that phrase. I was going to mention that same thing. I was, I was picturing that as sort of like 
the tacky little office desk right, stuff. Right, yeah, that it's you almost a cliche get. thing to yeah. to say, you know, like live, laugh, love, or, you know, not all who wander are lost, one of your <laughs> favorites, Trey. Right, right. <laughs> he's cleared all his things and he's put them in boxes, things that remind him life has been good. No, it's almost like, you know, Hopefully life has been good and, and hopefully there are genuinely good feelings that are evoked when he looks at whatever he's putting into the boxes. I've had a lot of coworkers over the years who will put photos of their kids and trips they've gone on and all these great things around them at work. And I've always thought of it as something that they can look at when, when the going gets tough, when they're stressed at work, they look around them at their office and they have, they have strategically placed photos of their family, their loved ones that can, number one, serve as reminders of why they're there. And two, remind themselves that, hey, even when work gets tough, even though you don't want to be here stuck in this cubicle, there are good times and there is a life outside of work and things to to live for. So I think those things do genuinely bring people uh, a sense that life has been good, even in the troubled, trying times of being at work. But the fact that it's put in quotation marks, there's almost a caveat to that where, you know, at the, at the time, especially being let go, Fred isn't really feeling like life has been good. And in fact, maybe you could go as far as saying it, it hasn't been that great for him. Maybe, maybe his life is the job. Maybe his life is the newspaper. Who knows what he's putting in those boxes that remind him life has been good. Maybe it's, maybe it's awards. Maybe he was named editor of the year in the, the late 80s and he has a plaque on his desk. So who knows what those things are, but potentially when he's throwing them in the boxes and moving on, it, it's, it doesn't feel like it at the time. It doesn't feel like life has been good. So maybe it's not 100% uh, genuine. Yeah, I pictured it being just some little tacky thing that at the time he bought to kind of make him think, oh yeah, life's good. I'm going to buy this little bobblehead whatever that says, you know, life is good or smile or whatever. And when he's packing it up it just feels so ironic that it's like some commercial thing that Mm, was mm, sold and it's probably cheap and now he's like going this is what a stupid thing to put on this little cheap thing on my desk that now so you thought of it as like one particular thing that he's clearing and, and throwing into that box like one thing that reminded him of that I figured that there was several things he's putting in the box, but the fact that he put the life has been good in quotes, I, there's so many things like that that you might get as little like, you know, inspirational, motivating mm-hmm. kind of junk, basically, that you would have right. on. And I just pictured it as being one of those types of things that mm-hmm. now sort of stands out as being ironic as he's packing it up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, I can remember a lot of movies that I've seen over the years where somebody gets fired and you can see them clearing out their office and there might be a few objects or photos that they they stop and take a look at and place nicely into the box but it seems like I can remember a lot of scenes where people are just taking their arm across the desk and dragging everything into the box and just kind of roughly packing things up and getting out of there like this stuff doesn't even matter anymore because I'm fired and I'm not happy you know, life is not good right now, but here's all these things that are supposed to try to remind me that life is great. And this is why you're doing this. And this is why you should be smiling and and be happy and and whatever. But, you know, sometimes maybe those are just crutches or something to hide reality that, you know, maybe it's not that great all the time. Fred gets his paints out and 
goes to the basement projecting some slides onto a plain white canvas and traces it fills in the spaces he turns off the I wanted to talk too about you know the, the second act so to speak it sounds like maybe one of the things that Fred enjoyed doing in his spare time which maybe he didn't get enough of was painting so it goes into that part at the second half of the song so he gets he gets out his paints and goes to the basement projecting some slides it sounds like maybe he's sort of trying to trace over mm -hmm. art that somebody else has done maybe realizing that he doesn't have that skill maybe if he would have had more time if he hadn't devoted so much of his time and efforts to his job this other thing that also was a passion of his might have been better and so now he's both getting fired and also realizing that the time that he devoted to his job has also made it so the second thing he cares about is also not going to come to fruition the way he wanted it to that's kind of what it felt like on that part to me and maybe you're right that it's a hobby or, or a distraction something that he does right away to take his mind off the fact that he's been fired or let go and he thinks well hey you know i i got all this time now let me make the most of it i'll go downstairs and try to do something that reminds me life life is life has been good or that there are still good things in life to look forward to but then yeah. you know to his unsatisfaction he looks at it and says man it doesn't even look right i i know I'm, i i can't even trace these photos and make something look good or get enjoyment or happiness from this that you know everything is kind of down and it doesn't look right and all of these bastards have taken his place he's forgotten thing that stood out to me in that line is everything leading up to this is sort of an unemotional narrator it's just sort of dictating what's happening and it's a sad mm -hmm. story but the narrator is sort of separate from that he's telling you what's happening you recognizing it it's sad but the narrator itself doesn't really interject any emotion until it gets to that part that says yeah all of these bastards have taken his place it's not fred jones saying all these bastards have taken my place it, it's still the narrator's voice mm -hmm. talking about fred so I found that interesting that what has up to this point been sort of an unemotional narrator starts kind of siding with Fred and talking about these bastards that have taken his place. It's almost like it takes a different perspective than it started with in, in narrating what Fred's going through. Yeah, and the line that follows is really clever. He's forgotten, but not yet gone. He's not even gone. He's not yet gone from the business, and he's not gone in his mind of being irrelevant yet or not able to do the work anymore he he still has the abilities so his skills are not gone his ability to do the job is not gone but he's already being forced to move on and, and he's forgotten right musically this is i think the first time where we start to hear some strings introduced mm -hmm. you hear yeah. that single violin yeah i love the violin 220 oh, yeah. mark yeah Yeah, even in the beginning, I think it's in the background a bit, and it kind of sets the mood for the song. Melancholic about it, you could say. Yeah, again, one that fits similar to the Still Fighting It song, musically and, and lyrically mm -hmm. do go together in this one. There's one other line that I want to mention. Street light shines through the shades, casting lines on the floor and lines on his face. He reflects on the day. Do you think the street lights shining lines on his face could be a, a double meaning for him getting older and having wrinkles 
perhaps. Could be. Yeah, and, just and kind of illuminating there. I, I just right. pictured it as kind of like a scenery mm-hmm. of him being alone in, in the street light. But yeah, uh, potential. Sure. Yeah, like like somebody peeking through the blinds and they see the light coming in and they feel kind of distant or something or just deep in thought. Right. Yeah, I just thought with that being followed up by he reflects on the day that that could be more than reflecting on that specific day that he's thinking about the fact that he's older now and day representing his life, thinking back on 25 years of the newspaper and how that's consumed a large part of his life and who is he now, where does he go next in part two or the next chapter of, of his life and just thinking about the fact that maybe a lot, a lot of opportunities are not there anymore. Time has passed. As you mentioned, maybe one of his hobbies or, or something he always thought about doing was uh, painting. You know, even that maybe seems like the opportunity has passed and no, he's he's definitely reflecting on who he is now and where he goes from here. And lastly, just like the abrupt ending to his job, the song itself ends somewhat abruptly musically too, which I think just mm-hmm. kind of makes you feel a bit like how Fred might have in that moment. It's time. We should also mention the repetitive part in I'm Sorry, Mr. Jones. They really stew on that for a long time. And that's, again, coming from the narrator's perspective, I assume. Or perhaps you could take that as the company feeling sorry or maybe the person who has to come share the bad news feeling sorry. Maybe Mm -hmm. perhaps there could be somebody who is really empathetic by the situation, you know, feeling the pain and and not wanting to be the bearer of bad news. Because when Ben is singing that part, and I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, with... I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. John McCrea, is it? Lead singer of Cake that sings on this with him. I, this, I'm John glad you're bringing that up because you, you mentioned that. That Yeah, uh, he sings harmony on this here. Ah, I didn't even know that. Okay. But it's really okay. beautiful and and uh, they they hang out on that for a long time. You know, it's not just a line in the song. It's repeated over and over and it, it's um, really focused on musically. They sing those words. They They drag them out for quite a while. And like every time it's like, it almost gives you the sense of somebody just overly apologizing for something that they're so sorry about, but they also feel kind of helpless. Like I, I can't control this. Like I'm really, I'm really, really sorry. This had to happen to you or I have to do this. Like, you know, please forgive me, but they're feeling, they're feeling some guilt, I think in the way that is sung. So whether that's supposed to be the, the bearer of bad news, the person at the company that had to let Mr. Jones know that he's leaving or, or perhaps it's the security guard or whoever, uh, is looking in on this situation. Somebody is is feeling sorry. sorry, Mr. Jones. And I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. I have to say I was kind of surprised that this was your favorite song. And I don't mean that in a sense that I think this is a great song, but for some reason, I just didn't think like, oh, this is going to be Shane's favorite on the album or this was going to be one that stands out as somebody's favorite. I, I think of this as like a really good song and like everybody's second favorite or everybody's third <laughs> favorite or something, yeah. but no one's first favorite. So I found it interesting that this was your favorite. Can you articulate why you think this one stood out the most to you? I think I empathized with the character. Mm. I, I, I felt 
sorry for Fred Jones. And it made me think of not only what he, he's going through in this song, but also the battle that we all have in life where we want to be important, but in reality, we're, we're not that important. You know, there's a very small part of the world, our friends, our family, our coworkers, that we do hold a large amount of importance. But in the grand scheme of things, what we're doing is not profoundly influential. And it's a, a bit of a, a dose of a harsh reality that all things come to an end. Things die out, people move on, things change. So even though it's about a guy being let go from his job, I think there's a lot that can be extrapolated from that and, and applied to life. I also think the imagery that the lyrics create really drew me into the song to have to clear all his things off his desk and go home. And then he puts the, the you know, he gets the paint out and he, he puts the slides up on the wall and he, and he starts painting. There, there's so, there's so much that you can just envision. It drew me in. And then and musically it's a, it's a beautiful song too. If I had to sit down right now and objectively try to come up with my favorite song in this album, it would probably be a difficult task. But Fred Jones part two has always stood out to me. It's always been something that I've remembered. So instead of having to sort through and and decide which one is my favorite with some big long explanation, I, I go with this song because, you know, it's it's always been there. Well, we'll stick with the office scene for the next one, a little bit different. This is the last song on the first side, and this is called The Ascent of Stan. The Ascent of Stan This is another track that paints a good picture and allows you to visualize the characters and the scene. Pangs of silence from the room upstairs. How's the view there? Do you read what they're saying about you? That you're no fun since the war was won. In fact, you have become all of the things you've always run from. Pangs of silence from the room upstairs. How's the view? That opening basically tells the entire story of what's happening in this song. There's a man, Stan, who has become CEO or high up in a, a big company. He's high up on the 10th floor with his glass walls looking out. How's the view up there? Looking out over the city or, or potentially how's the view up there could be a metaphor to describe that he's made it to the top, that he's no longer who he used to be. And people are questioning what's it like to be up there. But reading into the lyrics a little bit more, since the war was won, you gather that, and it explicitly says it in, in another line, textbook hippie man. Stan was likely a rebellious hippie during the 60s and protested the, the Vietnam War. Or, or potentially another way to look at it is that he was against the establishment, that he spoke out against government, big business, and that he was 
all about people and, and connections and the more sentimental things of life and not one to pursue money and power and, and moving up in a company, but that that's ultimately the path that he went down. And now he's being challenged by potentially former friends asking what it's like up there. And, and maybe also he's challenging himself and questioning whether or not he made the right decision to pursue this. And if he's truly happy now, or maybe, you know, life was better before all of that. Right. And when it says, it says, do you read what they, they're saying about you in that line you read? It could have said, do you hear what they're saying? But to read what they're saying about you implies that he's high up enough that he's actually well-known, that maybe he'd be written about in a paper oh, yeah. or a magazine somewhere or something. Good so catch there, for sure. Clearly, yeah. clearly uh, has made it in the eyes of the world anyway. Yeah, so it wouldn't necessarily be former friends who are talking to him, but maybe critics who have written about him, and now he's reading that and wondering if, if they're correct or questioning who he is and if he made the right choices in life. Right, right. I think the pace of the, the piano uh, at the beginning of the song really makes you feel like things are moving quickly. Like, you know, the hustle and bustle of the world, the business life, everything's going fast in every direction. And I feel like that's creating this sense of this person racing to the top of the corporate ladder so quickly that, you know, they, they don't even see what's happening along the way. They lose sight of the more important things in life. And by the end, by the end of their life or later adulthood, when they've made it to the top, maybe that's 20 years into a career or whatever it may be, you know, they're finally having some time to reflect and think about things. And right on cue, the song slows down musically. It almost comes to a halt at times. The piano stops and the tone becomes very reflective in a sense, almost like this gut check moment where you're like, oh shit, what, what just happened? Like my, my life just passed by me with, without even seeing what was happening. And now you know, where, where am I? Who am I? What, what's going on? You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say that exact same thing. And that contrast between the chorus being quicker and then the words reflect it when it's quieter. That's kind of the reflective part of where the years go and pangs mm -hmm. of silence. You know, these type of words of him kind of thinking about. All the about, time we had. Right. Yeah, like, the the big so, picture. When he gets a yeah, moment in the chaos to think about it, that's when he's pontificating about whether it was mm -hmm. worth it or what it's all about. What are yeah, they saying yeah. about me? But then it, he doesn't even have time to process or, or make a decision to change it because you're back into that really intricate piano part on the chorus, which is probably what stood out the most to me musically growing up with this album. When I put this on and went, oh yeah, Rock in the Suburbs, I remember that album. I mm -hmm. wonder how many songs I'll know. This is yeah. one of them, in addition to, of course, the title track and one of the ones that we'll talk about at the end that, that I remembered. This is one that by the title, I wasn't sure if I would remember. And then, of course, that first piano part, I was like, oh yeah, Scent of Stan, I remember this song big time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I thought that was really cool because it reminded me a little bit of that song we talked about when we talked about the Pine Grove album, uh, Spiral, I just pictured those days on the calendar just kind of being peeled away, you know, quickly sure. and time passing yeah. as the as the piano's playing that part. Well said. I wonder if he had a particular person in mind when he wrote this or if this is just a story that he thought of. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear him talk about the characters, which ones were based on real people in life and which ones he threw in there to represent things we all go through or or maybe you know he was just moved by 
a certain idea of thinking about you know the, the the contrast between somebody being a hippie and then finding themselves in a suit and tie in the corporate America world and what that must be like from their perspective. Yeah, and that term the man was coined in that particular time period when the Vietnam War was going on and the hippies and that kind of thing. But I think that in this particular song, since the war was won, could just be that war between culture and subculture. Yeah, or or the people and the man, meaning government or authority. Right. This is a song I think that stood out, like I said to me when I was growing up, listened to it. This is one that as I dug into the lyrics... I wouldn't say that I liked it less, but because digging into the lyrics of some of the other ones really opened the song up to me, this one stood out musically to me, and then digging in deeper on the lyrics, this one didn't speak to me quite as much, so I would say this one maybe stayed at a similar level of enjoyment as I had growing up, because it was, again, just the music that stuck with me the yeah, most, and right. the lyrics didn't uh, grab me quite as much. But Or it dropped a couple notches on the, the ranking. It dropped for, on the, the ranking because of the other ones jumped up ahead of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it didn't, yeah, it didn't totally spoil it. I can't say I read the lyrics and went, oh, I hate this song now. But <laughs> right. it just didn't really, um, it didn't level it up like some of the other ones did. So it ended up being maybe one of my lesser favorites, whereas it might have been one of my favorites listening to it growing up. I really liked it musically as well. And I think the idea of writing a song about hippie gone corporate is kind of a cool idea and a difficult task to sit down and say, I want to write a song that describes this whole experience. So I got to give him credit for being able to do that. I also think, and this isn't something unique to this song, Ben Folds does it in a lot of his music, but he has a way of bending the words or singing them in, in such a way that he can almost put any words to the music that he wants them to be accompanied with. Whereas he doesn't have to pick certain words or sentences that fit well with the music because he can manipulate his voice or, or pause at certain times and change the way he says them to, to make it fit with the music. Said in a, in a different way, if you go through a lot of these songs and others that he's written over the years and simply read the lyrics, it reads like a story. And if you had to predict how that would sound in the music, you're probably wrong. You're probably not going to be able to think about how that would be put to music and sung. Even even if you heard the instrumental version and then you read the lyrics, oftentimes I feel like he catches me off guard on how he presents it. And and sometimes one line will finish and it'll be the start of the next line. It'll kind of transition. He'll use the same word to finish one line and also start the next one, where if you just read that lyric, bar by bar or line by line the way it would be written on a website or in the album notes you might interpret it differently than the way he sings it where that last word of one line is actually more appropriately placed as the first word of the next line there's that line that i mentioned before where he says all the time we had so the line is being poor was not such a drag in hindsight and you think how will that fit into a song like being musically pleasant and in the way he sings it i believe is being poor was not such a drag in hindsight uh, you know and then it goes on to something else so that's not the way you would ever say that sentence you wouldn't ever speak it that way to somebody but he finds a way okay i want to say this this is the sentence being poor was not such a drag in hindsight and instead of having to find different words in a different way to say that so that it sings well he just pauses after being poor was and then he finishes the other part you know, to fit the music, to say the same thing, but it's just in a really creative, nifty kind of way, I guess. I, I don't know if 
other people caught up on that or think it's as fascinating as I do, but that's just something I think that's uh, one little unique part of the way Ben composes music and, and sings and tells these stories. Right. Yeah. And I think that song that you mentioned, not on this album, but on Whatever Never Amen, Cigarette is a good example of that. Oh, yeah. It sounds like for sure. he just kind of has the words. He's like, I want to say this. Mm-hmm. And the music's going to have to fold around that. He's going to yeah, have to make right, it yeah. work um, because that's these a, are the words yeah, that are going to be said. That's a great example. You have You have the words. And in that case, with the song Cigarette, he took the words from a newspaper clipping. So right. he said, I want this to be the song. These are the words. This is the sentiment or the message. So he makes music to accompany those words. But that's not the end of the song. You still have to find a way to say those words with the music and give that message across. And to some degree, that's what all musicians, that's what all singer-songwriters do. But it just seems like he's a little more clever or he does it differently. I won't say he's any more or less talented or gifted than a lot of the other singer-songwriters, but he does it in a, a creative way. Yeah, he's got his own way of doing it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, that about does it for side A of this album. Are we ready to move on to the next side? Let's do it. At this point, we'll flip the record over. So I have to mention at this point, because 2001, again, is not a time where you're going to get a lot of vinyl records. They didn't anticipate... In the beginning age of iPods, the resurgence of vinyl was not top of mind. So I couldn't find this one on original vinyl. It's been repressed, and a lot of times the represses are a double, so it was sectioned into four. So I thought, maybe I'm going to have to pretend where we're flipping this record. But then I got the idea, I'll bet you there's a cassette version out there. Ah. And that's where I found that nice. side A and side B of this album is a perfect six and six so we're moving on to track seven now we will flip the record over and this is losing lisa start side two with a couple songs back to those proper names this song losing lisa the following one another proper name of a female that we've seen that pop up throughout this album as he's telling these little stories and this of course is another story as we get into the second half of the record this is another good track we went back and forth discussing this one via text when we were getting ready for the podcast and slightly disagreed i think maybe on what's happening here or at least i had a little different way of, of, of looking at the storyline. Why don't you explain how you interpreted it? That's right. We were texting back and forth. I can't really remember where we diverged there, so I'm, I'll be curious. But I think the part where you both agree on is this is a breakup, and the narrator is the male who's losing Lisa, as the title of the song indicates. And there's a couple lines in there, I think, where I was thinking that it's his fault, and it, he says as much when he says, and I am wrong. There's also lines where he's talking about watching her lips moving and being mesmerized by that. So I took that as him not really paying attention to maybe the most important parts of her. He's focused on some of these other things, and in part that could be why 
he doesn't really know what he's done. He's not busy listening to her. I definitely agree the song is about a breakup. That's fairly clear. The part that I question is whether the narrator, the male character in this case, truly believes that he did something wrong or knows exactly what he did. That's the part that I think is up for interpretation. Even going back to the opening verse, it says, the lights are off again. She took me by surprise. She's so sensitive. This shit just happens sometimes. He's already kind of set the stage that he feels like she's sensitive. Maybe she's easily upset or from his perspective, potentially overreacts. She's so sensitive. The shit just happens sometimes. She's Every so often. And then he goes on to say, she's my everything, my best friend and more. But he, he obviously knows that a breakup is about to happen because the pre-chorus says, before you go, you ought to know that I didn't mean to hurt you. I just wanted you to know. And I'm not sure what that part is about where he's saying, I just wanted you to know if he just wanted her to know something, if he told her something and that actually ended up hurting her. I've read online and some people say that's alluding to the fact that maybe he cheated on her or did something to betray her and maybe it was a mistake or an accident or immediate regret or, or, or something like that that he felt bad about but felt like she should know. So he, he told her and you know, didn't want it to hurt her, but obviously there are certain things that happen in relationships that would, no matter what. Yeah, or in that pre-chorus, you know, if you think of it flipped around, and he might have just done this for the meter of the song, if it, if it were to have said, I just wanted you to know that I didn't mean to hurt you, that's how I was reading that. He, oh, it was oh, okay. It was a complete statement. He's just saying, I didn't mean to hurt you, I just, I just wanted you to know that. Okay, yeah, he realizes she's taken off and saying, hey, before you go, I just want you to know I didn't mean to hurt you. There is the line in the chorus that's repeated that says, black tears are falling down her face and I am wrong. But then it's followed up with black tears are falling and she won't say what I've done. If you know you're wrong about something, you wouldn't need somebody to tell you what you did that upset them because you already know you're wrong and that's what probably upset them. Unless he did something that he's admitting is wrong, but he doesn't think it's that big of a deal, that it's something kind of trivial in his mind. But I don't know if he's really saying he understands that he did something wrong and he knows exactly what that is. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to ask her for clarification as to why she's so upset. Yeah, I think I agree with you on the fact that he just he doesn't know why. I was just reading into some of the lines that I think I don't think it's explicitly said. So I don't I think this interpretation is open, but. I just took the parts like, you know, her lips are moving. I'm mesmerized by watching tiny lines. And then even the chorus of the black tears are falling. We, we were talking about how that's likely to be mascara. Right. Uh -huh. And it seems like he's very zeroed in on some of these details that really don't matter. Maybe he's one of these guys that just sort of misses the big picture. He's trying. He's, he's zoned in. He's noticing small 
changes in her, but they, none of those things really matter about why she's sad and he, he doesn't understand. Uh, he knows he knows it's, it was him, but he doesn't know what mm-hmm. it is. So on one hand, I could interpret it as him thinking that she's overreacting and being too sensitive that he doesn't think it's that big of a deal. But there's another way you could look at that in the fact that he might be admitting that he's wrong or he knows that he must have done something wrong for her to be so upset, but he's also not really sure what that was because she won't tell him. Yeah. I was thinking about this one too. I can't remember when you were bringing it up before, but you were talking about how he would end one line or start another one. Mm -hmm. And on the part where he says, we don't do anything we didn't do the day and then the pre-chorus is before you go. Right. So that yeah. word before ends the, that part. And I remembered when you had brought that up earlier that there was a, a song that did that. And I couldn't remember which one it was until we got mm-hmm. to this one. But that's, that's the one that made me we think of that. Yeah, I like when he does that. And this is another one, too, where the sound of it contrasts the message. You know, this is... A sad song about a breakup, but you kind of want to snap your fingers and maybe even <laughs> dance a little bit to this one. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty upbeat. The other thing I was texting you about this one, it reminded me a little bit of the beginning of Pet Sounds, with That's there's right. kind of a like a kitty sounding piano to start this one off, and then there's that kick drum where that piano goes away and it's replaced by a, a regular piano, and it reminded me a little bit of the way Pet Sounds starts off with wouldn't it be nice the lights are off again. oh yeah i see that for sure and i mentioned you could almost dance to it there's a little break in the song where it really does sound almost like a vaudeville type of dance you picture somebody with like a top hat and a cane <laughs> or something dancing around that 313 mark it's kind of making me smile Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's def- definitely a fun sounding song. If you're not even paying attention to the lyrics, it, it does make you happy, even though it's a song about a breakup. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun sometimes, I, I bet, as an artist to do that. I, I remember when Sean Nelson was talking about in the first couple Harvey Danger albums, he had kind of the sense of humor where he would take the weighty subject matter and a little bit more lighthearted music. And he said it wasn't so much combining them as it was kind of smashing them into each other and seeing mm-hmm. what would result. And yeah. I kind of think this is like, what if what if I write a snap your fingers kind of dance song about a breakup? Has yeah. anybody done that? Right. Could, I, could I pull that <laughs> off? I, I just think Ben might have thought that was a fun challenge. Yeah. Life was simple then. What did you make of the verse later in the song? Life was simple then, but she's not happy now, and I don't feel anything. Her lips are moving, I'm mesmerized by tiny lines. I'm watching as the shapes are drawing slowly from her eyes. And early, early in the song, it sounds like he's upset that she's leaving. He says, she's my everything, she's my best friend and more. But then later in the song, he says, I don't feel anything anymore. You know, is, is he slowly checking out and moving on in this in this moment or is that alluding to the fact that 
perhaps the relationship was falling apart. Yeah, I mean, because earlier in the song he talked about how she's his everything, I took this part to be more like a he was numb. Yeah, I think so. Maybe, yeah, he's he's in shock or can't right. even think clearly yeah. or, or even uh, pay attention much because he's lost hope and kind of maybe panicking a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that about sums it up for track seven, Losing Lisa. We'll move on now to the next track and introduce you to another character and another storyline. Track eight is titled Carrying Kathy. is another really pretty song musically we'll get into the lyrics that are a little darker than perhaps the sound of the music but the piano to open this track with the subtle drums and cymbals playing in the background is is really nice i i really like that yeah i did too i I guess i kind of thought of this one fitting for the most part i mean it's not super depressing musically but it does give a weight to it a little bit it's certainly not a danceable song and and certainly the subject matter is not as well Right, it's it's not as poppy. It it's it's definitely got a more serious tone to it. But I feel like you could hear this this piano playing in the mall or something. You know, just like a laid back, easy listening kind of sound. If you were just to listen to this instrumental, yeah, maybe something that would be put in the background. If you listen closely to it, it's it's very pretty. But mm-hmm. I could see it maybe being something that doesn't really stand out. I suppose you, in some ways you could draw that comparison to the character. Kathy herself. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I would say this might be the most complex track from a, a lyrical standpoint on this entire album. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think I would agree with that too. It's nope. it's a unique story. Yeah, and I think part of that is because there are some lines that are up for interpretation, but I think there's also more complex sentences and word choice. It, it felt like it was a little bit more elaborate than some of the other songs that didn't have quite as many words or, or felt simpler for whatever reason. Well, let's get into the storyline behind this one. The first part starts off introducing Kathy right away. It says her window was hung like a painting. She worried it might come to life. Thinking about a window like a painting, I guess you imagine somebody that's staring out the window and seeing life pass by and maybe having like social anxiety and you know worrying that that might come to life or or being afraid of reality outside of her window and so thinking of it like a picture frame hanging as opposed to the actual world outside her window is hung like a painting she worried it might come to life and it's written from the perspective of a friend or maybe her significant other Lines like, so obsessed was I and self-absorbed that I didn't see that she was crying. So this person that's narrating is in some ways blaming themselves, perhaps, which fortunately is a common thing when people fall into depression or worse as we get into deeper into the words to this one, where the people that love them are feeling the weight of some of this guilt that their love and care isn't enough to bring them out of this state that they're in. So obsessed was I and self-absorbed that I didn't see that she was crying. 
So then we get into the chorus that says, there was always someone carrying, there was always someone carrying, always someone's carrying Kathy. So either the narrator is saying that from his perspective, that someone was always having to pick Kathy up or cheer her up in a sense, or bring her out of her slump or, or try to be there for her because she was often having a difficult time. Another way to interpret that is that perhaps there was always somebody carrying the weight of Kathy, that there was somebody or, or perhaps her family or friends that were always kind of feeling burdened by her, her personality or demeanor or outlook on life. Perhaps she's not the most optimistic person and that was heavy for a lot of people who cared about her or, or that they, they saw that she was that way and, and cared about her and loved her and really couldn't get through to her so that that kind of left them feeling you know the weight of her like they're carrying that guilt or burden and and not able to help the way they wish they could i like that for some reason i didn't think of it that way but i think that's even more fitting and then that goes right into the next part about he's i'm saying he and in my mind this is a significant other i I don't think that's explicitly said but it could be a, a friend but whoever the narrator is is saying almost making excuses for her and to friends saying, you know, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. She's not always like this. You know, I'm kind of apologetic when it's just the two of us. She's different. There were times when I find myself saying to friends, you don't understand. And she's different when it's just me and her. And I closed the door and I tried to hang on and she sank into the dark. But then it says, I closed the door and tried to hang on and sank into the dark. I was over my head. So almost implying that maybe behind closed doors, it really wasn't too much different. He still had the weight of Kathy. He was still trying to carry her, whether it was the two of them or when she was out in public. Yeah, it's almost like his friends or family are calling him out. Like, how could you possibly deal with her and and deal with all this stuff? And he's like, no, you, you just you don't get it. You don't understand. You know, things are different when it's just us. But then he, he goes on to admit that he's, he's uh, over his head. He says, and I, I closed the door and I tried to hang on and she sank into the dark. I was over my head. He's beginning to realize that perhaps it is too much for him to handle, that he's taken on this project and he's realizing maybe he's not equipped with all the tools required to help this person. Right. And then I think from here is where the lyrics start to get maybe a little bit up for interpretation. So I'm curious to hear what you made of the rest of this song, Trevor, and, and I'll, I'll give you my perspective if perhaps it's different than yours. So then it goes on to say one night she climbed into that picture frame that we talked about in the first verse out in the frozen air and out of sight. So this is the point where it sounds like she's been staring out that window. I'd mentioned social anxiety, also maybe just contemplating jumping. And this is the point where it sounds like she does that. She jumps out the window and out of sight. And so that part seemed pretty clear, but I'm with you on going beyond that saying woke up sad from the stream I've been having 
the last couple nights or so. I wasn't sure what that part meant. Woke up from a dream. Woke up sad from this dream I've been having the last couple nights or so. Yeah, I think that's the part that's up for interpretation because it immediately follows the verse that you mentioned where it says one night she climbed into that picture frame out into the frozen air. What I want to believe, maybe wanting to put a, a positive spin on this song, is that it's part of the dream. That the main theme of this song is that the narrator is having a, a really difficult time getting through to this person that they care about so much and they're they're wrestling with not feeling competent to the point that it's keeping them up at night and perhaps leading to them having nightmares thinking, man, you know, she's staring out this window, whether that's actually happening or that's a metaphor for her being in her own world and not really engaged the way she should be with normal conversation or interaction with people. But if she is at the window or even if she's not at the window, I think Potentially, this is a, a nightmare, a recurring dream that the narrator is having where he does see her get depressed to the point that she decides to take her life. And it might not be jumping out of a window. That could again be a metaphor used for the song, but that he could be thinking anything. There could be a number of ways that she could end up deciding to do that. And I think he is potentially having this nightmare where he sees her do it and he's carrying a box through the rain with her father and brothers they're all at the funeral and you know maybe he wakes up from this gasping thinking oh my gosh i i have to try harder i have to get to this person otherwise you know eventually i'm going to be too late and this is going to be the outcome yeah i guess so i didn't think about that as being a dream you know not that not actually happening i, I pictured that she did unfortunately jump through that picture frame through that window and i guess what solidified it to me is it's all past tense in the chorus there was always someone carrying kathy this doesn't sound like a situation where it somehow gets resolved any other way that you know she used to be depressed and then we figured it out um it, you know it sounds like there was always someone carrying carrying kathy isn't isn't a way of saying that she got over it it's a way of saying that it's what ended her yeah, it's hard to dispute the, the past tense there. I can see where that would make it sound like we're reflecting on Kathy's life. This is a song explaining what she went through and inevitably how things ended up. But at the same time, you have to make sense out of the dream line. And I'm not sure how else you would take that unless you say that's after the fact. And after all this has happened, he keeps having a bad dream at night that he keeps waking up from yeah he keeps reliving the you know, funeral yeah, which was a real event but it. having nightmares about it yeah that's kind of how i was seeing it i like the part when it mentions carrying the box through the rain there's some lighter p you know piano on the higher register that almost sounds like raindrops at that point and a lot of orchestration comes in on this song too I, i'm trying to remember earlier in the album when we had some violins playing i think that was on fred jones part two yes yep and here we have even a, a little more orchestration on this one. And that would be a, a typical sound I think you might associate with something a little bit more sad, perhaps a funeral. Not that violins have to be that way, but a lot of times it's that slow 
melodic reflective kind of sound yeah gives it a little bit more weight for sure it was a pretty song definitely i would say i'd agree with you this is probably maybe the most complex lyrically and certainly the heaviest subject matter we pick up the pace a little bit from here to a much more light-hearted song and storyline this next song track nine is called not the same you took a trip and climbed a tree several stories that I often wonder where Ben gets the ideas for some of these. I hope Carrie and Kathy isn't a true story, but in this song, the character in Not the Same is based on a true story. It mentions Robert Sledge, who was a former member of Ben Folds 5, the bassist. In actuality, this party that's being described was his other band member from Ben Folds 5, Darren Jesse, but Ben had just said he thought Robert Sledge sounded a little bit better in that part. Yeah, so yeah I made, read that He made too. him the party. <laughs> so Ben described the story behind this song in his live album. And basically, the way they describe it, what happened, there was this guy at the party who dropped acid and ended up climbing into a tree. <laughs> unbeknownst to everybody at the party it sounds like and he stayed there the whole night he he just climbed the tree and stayed there i don't know <laughs> if he freaked out and had a bad trip and and needed to escape for a while or if he, he was hallucinating and thought he was being chased or who knows what i'm not i'm not sure but he ends up in this tree and the next morning everybody has left everybody's gone home and he comes down from this tree to i assume go inside and and talk to the to the host to the to the band the people that are still left hanging around and he realizes he he wants to devote his life to god again he's a a born-again christian and ben jokingly says on the on the album on the live album that that uh was released shortly after this one i think the next year he says yeah i kind of jokingly say it's it's where drugs and religion meet on the other side (laughs) (laughs) i i got the impression too that maybe the branch of religion that he no pun intended with branch decided to (laughs) end up on here after you intended that you intended that (laughs) i'll tell you what the dad jokes just flow out of flow now now. i don't even i don't even have to try You have to suppress them when you don't want to sound like you're 60. (laughs) Exactly. No, but the particular branch of religion that he seemed to end up on, at least from the chorus, it talks about you see them drop like flies from the bright sunny skies. They come knocking at your door with this look in their eyes, pictured like Mm, a Mormon. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Knocking on your door. Yeah, there, I, think, I think there's a few different faiths that tend to have missionaries and go door to door to spread the word, but definitely the Mormon faith is the one that we're most familiar with, haven't been exposed to over the years. 
you know, anytime, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of somebody coming and knocking on your door, asking oh, yeah, if you've heard definitely. the good word or not. Yeah. Back I, in the day. I think it's gotta be like a hundred to one that somebody actually opens the door, but <laughs> not where I'm from, not in Iowa, not in Iowa. We're way too friendly. Yeah. <laughs> you at least, you at least open the door and talk to them for a while. I don't know how many people let them inside. That's their next step. They want to get inside because then it's a little bit more personal. And then they're hoping they get invited up to the table. Oh, why don't you come up, have some coffee. And then, you know, they slowly work their way in. Not saying they do anything maliciously or there's a system sneakily. I mean, yeah, yeah there, there's, there's probably a system to it, but they're doing it with, with good intent. They're spreading information that they, they think is very important. So, yeah. Based on the results for this character, I was thinking, what if they showed up with acid at the door? Wouldn't that be a quicker way to do it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great theory. What if the Gideons just yeah. stuck acid in the drawer of hotel rooms instead <laughs> of Bibles? Ah, that's a clever idea. Take this, holiday your life in. to Christ. <laughs> Complimentary tree that you can climb up. Yeah, a Bible laced with acid will surely turn them into a uh, born-again Christian. <laughs> They never try anything. <laughs> Musically, what did you think of this song? I liked that there was kind of a theremin sound at the beginning, and we talked about the theremin yeah. when we talked about pet sounds, and I think Kate Bush had a kind of theremin-like sound on Sounds of Love that we had talked about a little bit. It's playing into the some of the production elements that I think distinguish this album from some of Ben Fold's earlier work, but mm -hmm. I also thought, you know, we talked about how it has kind of like a alien-sounding thing, so... Just to kind of complete the picture of somebody taking acid and having this experience, you know, almost like an otherworldly type of conversion that he had. So for, to me, the theremin kind of spoke to that. Yeah, I really like the choir in the background on that one part where it goes... Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah, flips up. And then later in the song, there's another choir part where they're they're doing some ooh sounds, but it, it's it's uh, really pretty. I'm not gonna try to do that one. You can just play it, but <laughs> that one's pretty cool too. Yeah. This song sounded big. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Production standpoint. So getting back to the story, after this fellow becomes a born-again Christian, the lines go, you took the word and made it heard and eased the people's pain. And for that, you were idolized, immortalized, and you were not the same after that. So obviously it, it changed him. Then it goes on to say, walking tall... You'd bought it all, and you were not the same after that till someone died on the water slide, and you were not the same after that. What did you make of that part? I, I just didn't even, I don't know if I missed that line or I don't have anything written or even a question mark by that, but now that you bring it up, I'm not sure what the died on the water slide part. That just kind of slipped through for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I just looked at it as maybe he becomes this born again Christian. He's he's preaching the word. He's really buying into it and starting to really believe. But then somebody unexpectedly dies on a water slide. It's like a test of his faith. Yeah, like yeah, it's testing his faith. Like how can I believe in this higher power that would take somebody's life on on a water slide? You know, like maybe that's something that challenged him to think about it again. Maybe it's literal. And the outro part is you're hanging on, you're hanging on. Like he didn't completely denounce it, but maybe there was a little crack in the armor there of him questioning it a little bit by the yeah, time I the wonder. song's over. I don't know. Yeah. But good catch. I, I kind of missed that line when I was deep diving this. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to unpack in this one. And it's really cool that Ben took a true story and then expanded on it and put in some lyrics to still make us think about what actually happened there, that there's probably not a complete picture of what happened to this guy in a tree, but that served as potentially an example for what a lot of people go through in, in their journey with faith, religion, that there's, there's trials and, and tribulations of finding religion or spirituality and then maybe questioning it and drifting away but then having something big a monumental thing happen in your life not necessarily taking acid and climbing a tree and staying there all night but that certain things can move you to to the point of having different thoughts and beliefs and then other things can come along and and challenge why you feel that way so maybe it's supposed to represent what a lot of people go through in exploring faith and spirituality during their lives. With this being a true story, you you got to think this person knows about this song. Yeah. Could we I, track him down? I, well, that... Get him on the podcast? <laughs> Be like, dude, we want to devote at least 45 minutes to talking to you about this night. This is crazy. I can already see the answer <laughs> being, I'd like to devote 45 minutes to telling you something as well. <laughs> We'd have to decide if it was worth it. Yeah. No, but I just wonder what that must feel like both as Ben to write the song and then to have this other person know that it's about him and not be completely framed in a positive light the whole way through. You must have to think about whether or not you want to do that a little bit. He's not hiding it. It's Robert Sledge's party or, as we mentioned, you know, his other band members' party. But a real event, I, I think that must have gotten back to this person. I just wonder how that must have felt for Ben and that, and that person. Do you think it was a friend or somebody they knew well or, or perhaps a, a big party with 100 people and some acquaintance? It makes you think at least he knows enough to, if we're interpreting your line about the water slide, you know, he at least knows some history. Oh, yeah. Whether that happened before right, or yeah. after this event sure. to, to know what happened to this person. So you must know him relatively well, even if it's through others. I don't know. Interesting. Should we move on to the title track? Yeah, this is this is a, a fun track. In track 10, Rock in the Suburbs, Ben shows us how he also has the skills to cross over into the metal genre and rock out a bit. Let's check it out. I'm rocking the suburbs. It's just like Michael Jackson did. I'm rocking the suburbs. So I jokingly said that this song shows us how ben can cross over into the the metal genre however it is the only 
track on the sound that really sounds like a true rock song with with guitar and drums and and a little bit heavier at times but in reality this song is a reaction to a set of comments uh, that were made during an interview by one of the members of the band Korn. In that interview, one of the musicians was speaking about Ben Fold's music style and stated that all we want to do is bring heavy back into rock and roll because God damn it, Ben Fold's five sucks. <laughs> and let's just say he took a little bit of offense to that and worked a little bit of humor into this song in, in his his comeback or, or reply to that. Yeah, not only in the song itself, but did you watch the music video for this one? Yeah, I did. Did you pick up on the parody of Korn song Freak on a Leash? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With, with that uh, room the with bullet the, holes like, bullet in, holes in it. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yep. And and uh also wearing that backwards red baseball cap like Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit used to wear all the time. Right. So I'd heard this song, you know, like I said, I had a burnt copy or something on my iPod, so I wasn't reading the lyrics and I hadn't seen the music video. So I was interested in that story that you mentioned. I didn't know there was an actual backstory of him making fun of, trying to make fun of Korn or get back at one of the members of Korn. So I was listening to this and definitely thinking of him making fun of Limp Biscuit. I didn't see the backwards hat at that time in the music video, but just the sound of his voice and some of the words he says kind of sounds like he's trying to make fun of Fred Durst in that Break Stuff song which is just such a ridiculous song anyways. <laughs> and it, it, it almost sounds like Ben is maybe glad they threw him this pitch because... Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I read I read in a different interview, and I quote, Ben said, I, I realized that there was a whole decade of radio formats that were just dedicated 24-7 to white middle-class anger. That's what that stuff was. Modern rock radio was white middle-class anger. It was screaming all the time. Everything was bad. Everything was lousy, fuzzy, pissed off. You know, you took it for granted after a while. I wanted to poke fun at it. And as I thought about it, I was like, okay, I'm making fun of this, but there's something to it. You know, so he kind of expanded on that idea that he already kind of had brewing in his mind but then when they were like you know ben folds five socks he's like ah this is it this is my chance to let it all out there and uh get my revenge on these people that he probably didn't like anyway already you know he did, did, didn't think they were making good music obviously yeah and i saw an interview with him too a little older you know i'd say maybe 10 years after at least um so reflecting with a little bit more perspective and, and he said it's a joke on one hand, but the middle class is often unhappy. They're told that they're moving up, but it's a lie. That they aren't going anywhere. And people get upset being told a lie, even if they have everything they need. So he's at least kind of recognizing that maybe there's a reason they're angry. He says it's not an excuse, but there's a reason. Yeah, definitely. I think if you read between the lines, you know, regardless of, of where you're at in life in relation to other people, everybody can be fighting their own battles you know there's plenty of top one percent rich people in america who on paper have it made they have everything they have so much more than so many people but that doesn't mean that they have mental health psychological well-being it doesn't mean they're happy it doesn't mean that they really view their their life the way other people view it looking from the outside so i think he is acknowledging that Yes, this is absurd, as, as you said, that 
people are angry and yelling and screaming and complaining about stuff. But he sort of understands where they're coming from too, or, or maybe there's a, a small amount of, of empathy. But, uh, y- you know, I think there's more poking fun at the idea that, you know, there's not really much validity to what they're complaining about. Because I saw another quote, he said, I thought about it for a while and I thought about Stevie Wonder growing up black and blind in a pretty rough time relative to civil rights. I think he had something to be pissed off about. But all of his songs aren't angry. They're love songs or happy songs, all kinds of songs, because he'd actually been through it so he could appreciate the good sides. So he's saying, you know, even if you're somebody who has a lot to complain about, if you've been there, you've been through it, you've come out on the other side, it's probably made you a better person. It's probably made you appreciate the good times in life. And that's what you're going to focus on and sing about when you're creating art, when you're, when you're doing your thing, when you're, when you're expressing your talents uh, to the world, like Stevie Wonder did. And and people are going to enjoy that and soak, soak up that goodness that you're sharing with the world. You know, so there's a lot of irony in the fact that Stevie Wonder could have been screaming and complaining about all of the challenges that he was thrown at that he had to experience in his life relative to these angry middle-class white people who don't have a, a ton of stuff to genuinely complain about. I also read a quote Musically, we talked about kind of trying to fit the sound to the message, and this is a very unique message, so there is a very unique sound being met for this one. He said, I had my producer produce the shit out of it. Yeah. <laughs> he said, overproduce this thing. I want you to make me sick. He said, cut it up into the grid, place everything perfectly, double, triple everything, tune my voice beyond belief, and let's rock. I'm rocking the suburbs. It's just like Michael Jackson did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's a, a a line in the song basically saying that he thinks that's what all these other bands are doing. So he he wanted his producer to do that as well to amplify the, the effect of what he was, was trying to do. It, it, it goes, I'm rocking the suburbs. I take the checks and face the facts that some producer with computers fixes all my shitty tracks. I think he's clearly poking fun at a lot of those bands that he feels are not great musicians deep down to their core, but they put some music together and, and producers fancy it up afterward and they turn it into a song but it's not that authentic. I like how he mentions Michael Jackson, Quiet Riot, and John Bon Jovi, all three being talented artists, as he mentions, except for they were talented. But I think all three being artists that have some of that maybe crossover appeal where they're going to be listened to them in the, in the suburbs. I mean, everybody's going to have you know, the same person that's got a you know, Spin Doctor CD is also going to have 
thriller probably. Yeah, and in those lines, and now that I think about it, maybe the entire song he's he's singing it as if he's them. He's singing it from their perspective, almost like if they were to stop screaming and complaining about stuff and actually speak the truth, this is what their song would be. And, you know, he says, I'm rocking the suburbs, just like Michael Jackson did. I'm rocking the suburbs, except that he was talented. That That's basically saying, you know, that's what Limp Biscuit and Korn should be saying. They, sh- they should be admitting to themselves like, yeah, I'm, I'm rocking the suburbs the same way Michael Jackson did, except he was actually good. So all, all of those bands basically did the same thing or appealed to the same audience, but they were actually good. You know, they were decent musicians. I read that that part in the first verse that says Shaman, which is listen up to my new CD, Shaman. Yeah, I read about that too. Yeah, if you if you read the same thing as me, that it was a deliberate mispronunciation of come on that Michael Jackson does in bad. So since he is referencing Michael Jackson this song, he did a little a little Michael Jackson impression at that point. And then I like the reference to I guess you could call them first world problems. Someone breaking in line at the McDonald's line or yeah, that was on hilarious. his way to get some preparation age. One people breaking the McDonald's line. Mom and Dad, you may be so uptight. Got a cuss on the mic tonight. The McDonald's line was great because he yeah. says you're so upset that somebody cut in line with you. It makes you mad, pisses you off, but you're not going to say anything. You know, you're not, you're not I'm tough too enough polite, to say something. He says. Yeah, you're too polite. So you're kind of a poser. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah, exactly. You think, you, you think you're a, a badass that's not going to take shit from anybody and boss people around and yell and scream and say cuss words and stuff, but actually you're not. You're just going to be mad in your head. You're just going to whine and complain to yourself and go home and complain to you know, your friends and family or hit your dog or do something stupid like that, but you're not going to actually stand up to anybody who could actually do anything to you. They're going to cuss on the mic tonight a weak as, a, person. <laughs> as opposed to confronting the person. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to take your anger out on your drums or on the microphone or something, but you're not going to actually do anything. Right. And then I was texting you. My favorite part of this song is when he warns you that he's going to say, fuck, yeah. Over and over. <laughs> you better watch out because I'm going to say fuck. Yeah. Which, of course, he's in the middle of doing several times. Right. And then yells at the end. Just It's like a terrible scream, though. Like, it's not even it's not even a good scream. <laughs> just yells. yells he tried. This was funny. I mean, and I, I liked this song. I think you and I were both texting about it. Yeah, yeah. We, I made that comment, too. Like, even though it's a satirical song it is kind of a fun sounding sing sing along rock song it's catchy you know it's clever it's funny right but then we were kind of saying both of us sort of agreed that maybe it didn't really fit in the context of the album so well or it was kind of hard or we were playing with the order a little bit for fun and saying what if you started with this and kind of got that out of the way and then dropped down into some of these other songs that have a little bit more it's it's a bit jarring in the middle of the album to me to have this kind of joke song amidst some of some of these other ones that have a deeper meaning yeah i th- i think i think so too because a lot of the other songs talk about more serious aspects of life 
relationships, dealing with guilt, depression, losing a job, moving on in life. They're, they're, you know, raising, raising a child, becoming a father. They're, they're monumental, important things in people's lives. And this one seems kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things. It's not that significant. And I don't know if, if the album is supposed to have any type of theme. I don't, I don't think it's a concept album, but if it is at all, you could say that a lot of these characters might represent people who you could potentially find in the suburbs. Maybe you could find them in the same neighborhood even where they're all living lives unbeknownst to each other in separate homes, maybe on the same block, maybe on the same square mile or or, or within the vicinity of each other where they could know what's going on, but they don't because a lot of this stuff is, is happening behind the scenes. And this is another example of something that people people go through in life. This would probably fall under identity formation or, or some type of role conflict or, or crisis with trying to come to terms with who you are and who you want to be and, and uh, making your way in the world for these people through through music, but also as Ben alludes to, dealing with some underlying personal issues. Although it's not quite as serious as, as the other issues we've talked about, it is it is another character or group of characters and their experiences, which is pro- probably the most unifying theme of this entire album. Yeah, you texted that to me and did kind of bring it home a little bit for me there. I, I liked your interpretation or, or perhaps it's just something that you're kind of um, assigning to it, but I, I'm going to adopt it because I, I like that. I still felt like the order of this was still a bit jarring, but I do see that you could put this maybe somewhere else in the album and have it fits this theme of these little worlds. So, I mean, yeah, all of them are kind of just little windows into the life of someone that could be living in a suburban region. So I, I like thinking of it that way. I still am holding my ground on saying I just feel like this, the placement of this one kind of pulls me out of the feel of the album a little bit. Yeah, I think I think it was placed in a strange spot as well. It it kind of catches you off guard, but maybe that's also the point. I don't know. I'm not sure how much thought Ben put into track order. I felt like this could have been a hidden track. It was during the time when when people liked to to do hidden tracks and this was kind of poking fun at people, so it would have been cool to put it as a hidden track where there's three minutes of silence and then this pops up where not everybody would would hear it but it's kind of hanging out there it's 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 in the world but it's still sort of being concealed a little bit yeah you know you know yeah you mentioned secret song and the time this would been really a transitionary point we we did shapeshifter by Marcy Playground, which which was released in 1999, so only mm-hmm. a couple of years prior to this, that song had a secret song. Yep. But a lot of change happened in those two years with how people were consuming music, and like I said, this was one of I think the first ones I might have had on an iPod as opposed to owning the CD of. Mm-hmm. I would be really interested to see album sales for this album in 2001, 2002 how much of them were physical copies and how much of them were downloads. Because another thing that Ben could have been thinking is, uh, you know what? No one's buying CDs anymore. It doesn't really matter the order I put these in because people are going to 
download them all or some of them and put them on shuffle anyways. So it doesn't really matter if this is jarring. I don't need to make this a secret song. I don't need to think about where I'm placing it. It's one of the songs and they're going to hear it at some point anyway. I don't know. I'd be really curious to ask him, but I'd also be really interested to see how much of this was purchased physically versus downloaded. At, yeah, I'd be intrigued to know both of that as well, yeah, to a- ask yeah. him about the song order and, and to see the stats on that. I, I did read somewhere that he said in making this album, his goal was to make as many catchy pop songs as he possibly could. So I, I almost feel like his gift is telling short stories or, or taking big elaborate ideas and concisely putting them into a song. So if you look at it like that, where each song is a new chapter of a book and the book is about short stories on life and people and everyday events, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't have to interact or, or, or connect, you know, musically it, it should still flow. And I'm sure all artists put some thought into how will this sound to the listener who does listen to it from start to finish. But if they're all supposed to stand alone by themselves and they could all potentially be released as singles then the the collection of them on the album doesn't matter so much because the album's not the focus it's it's the individual songs but nonetheless whether or not it fit with the flow i like it as a song and i like the story behind it i didn't know that about him kind of getting back at somebody from the band corn so that's that's a fun little side story to the 2001 music landscape at the time Should we move on to track 11? Yeah, let's do it. We have two tracks left on this album. The next one, 11, is titled Fired. All right, Shane, well, we'd like to text about some of these songs before we sit down to actually do the podcast, share some ideas and thoughts. This is one where my texts to you were pretty much, what the hell is this song about? And you texted back that maybe you had an idea, but you weren't going to let me know at the time. So here we are. We're recording. What the hell is this song about? <laughs> Cause she does, it's not the same The one she wanted to be in She says, everywhere I go, damn, there I am Alright, I'll give it a shot. I got a couple theories and then we can, we can talk about it. So it starts off by saying, Lucretia walks into a room because she does. It's not the same room. The one she wanted to be in, she says, everywhere I go, damn, there I am. It, it almost sounds like she can't escape herself or maybe there's multiple dimensions of her. And I'm not sure if it's very explicit about that, but she says, and I just want to walk away. Won't you let me walk away sometimes? Won't you let me walk away? Every one of you is fired. That made me wonder if maybe Lucretia has multiple personalities. She walks into a room because she does, because she just goes there. She doesn't even really know why or do it intently. It just happens. Maybe somebody else takes her to that room, but it's not the same. She doesn't want to be there. She says, everywhere I go, damn, there I am. You know, I just want to walk away. 
everyone of you is fired. I, I picture her maybe telling all these people in her in her mind, all these personalities, like, go away, leave me alone. You're all fired. I don't I don't want to be this person anymore. That's probably the more uh, out there um, possibility. Okay. But then That's out there, uh, but I'll, I got there's you. A, Keep going. There's a, 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 another part of that where it could be that she's having a lot of strife and going through some some tough times with the important people in her life, whether that's friends, family, roommates, somebody that she's sharing a space with. She's not getting along with everybody. She's fed up and gets to the point where she says, you know what? You're all fired. I want to move on. I want to start a new life. I want to get out of here. I don't want to be in this room anymore. I want to, I want to start fresh. So they're either real people outside of her or potentially multiple personalities. Those are my ideas. Okay. Okay. Oh, oh. And there's another part, the next line that says, I'm just an ordinary guy and all I want is to be loved. Is that so wrong? Don't think that I don't know what you're saying about me. I hear it all through these thin walls. So for one, Lucretia, but then later it says, I'm just an ordinary guy. So I don't know if that's supposed to be the narrator, somebody who's in a relationship with Lucretia, or maybe one of her other personalities is a guy. And now that's the person who's who's talking in this next verse. Maybe a, a new character or a new part of her potentially. Okay, okay. Either that or it's directing to an outside source. So it's either she's now getting information from somebody else who's who's talking to her or all this is going on inside of her head. This is the best I could do with this. I was thinking there are two similar conclusions that start with very different circumstances. So Lucretia, I thought, well, that's an ex- that's an exotic sounding name. And maybe she's somebody that just gets a ton of attention. The room is not the same when she walks in because, you know, she's beautiful. Um, everybody's staring at her, and she kind of is even making fun of that. Everywhere I go, damn, there I am. Like somebody might see her and be like, damn, there's Lucretia. So she's ah, kind of okay. like playing it down. I've like, oh my gosh, damn, like here that. I am. Yeah. And she just wants to walk away. She just kind of wants to live her life. She doesn't want all this attention. So every every one of you is fired is just kind of basically just saying, fuck y'all is sort of what that is. Yeah. And then... It's Leave contrasting, right. And then it's contrasting that to somebody else who, for very different reasons, comes to that same conclusion. He's just an ordinary guy. He wants attention. No one's paying attention ah, to okay. him. The only thing he hears is people kind of saying bad things about him as opposed to people that say great things about her. And he also just wants to get away from that. And, and he's also saying, every one of you is fired. You know, just leave me alone. And then there's that line that's like, shut the fuck up, motherfucker, you know, later. So that's what I kind of thought. It was just two people with very, very different circumstances that end up wanting the same conclusion. That's that's where I got. But I, I didn't know if I was anywhere close on that. I think you're right. Forget what I said. <laughs> Yours sounds way more believable. 
I didn't even think about that as I was going through the song lyrics. I, I did feel like this was one of them that I listened to and I, I didn't really pick up on what was happening. And I listened again and again and I read the words. And I don't know, it was, it was the one track on the album that wasn't explicit enough for me to connect with it right away. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I liked it's it. It's a musically. cool song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so too. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. It sounds nice. But it's another one that kind of contrasts. You know, I mean, not that these are super dark circumstances, but you know, it's not pot. Neither of them are having positive experiences. It doesn't sound like, and it's got that kind of swing feel to it. Mm-hmm. This is another one where I, I kind of heard some of what Sean Nelson does with in that album, Little by Little, the third Harvey Danger album. It's got a little bit of the piano and the swing feel. and mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of that, even the sound of his voice on some parts with this one. So Right. I liked it. I ended up liking the song, even though I wasn't sure what it was about. I wonder if one of the reasons why Rock in the Suburbs feels so out of place is because it's, it's sandwiched between this song and Not the Same, which seems kind of weird. You know, it's like yeah. a strange transition into it and then out of it to this song. You know, you got this this high from rocking the suburbs, and you're and you're laughing, and it's fun, and it's got you in a certain mood, and then all of a sudden, in comes Lucretia, and the song, fired. That it's not very clear, and you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough transition. Yeah. Well, man, this is this has been a, a long one. This has been great. A lot of a lot of fantastic songs on this album, but we got one left, and I mentioned earlier that Fred Jones Part Two takes the cake for me for being my favorite song on this album but if i had to pick a, a, a second it'd be it'd be a tough it'd be a tough choice between still fighting it in this last one but i think i would ultimately go with this last uh, song as my second favorite on the album uh, this one always always ha- has a way of of moving me almost to chills and, and sometimes tears that you know it's a it's a beautiful song and it really paints a, a good picture of of love. Uh, track 12 is titled The Luckiest. probably the song that I remembered best when you selected this album. I knew I knew this album and like I said there were several songs when I pushed play on this that were bringing me back to 2001 or 2 whenever I grabbed this album. But this is the one that I knew before even pushing play. The luckiest. This this is the song I think that stood out the most to me when I was listening in my youth and stuck with me again. I, I have to agree I, I still because of where I'm at in life right now still fighting it as the song that I liked the most, but this might have been my favorite at the time. Beautiful song. You've mentioned on other tracks that we've done on prior albums that we've dissected that there's some songs where the music, you'd get the emotion separate from the words. This very much so fits the feeling. The the piano and the sentiment behind it really go together. Oh yeah, man. The, the piano is so beautiful here at the beginning, and then the lyrics to follow. I mean... I I think this is perhaps one of the best love songs ever written, at least in our time, 90s, 2000s era. 
you know, this is this is really good, and and this is the one song that Ben has said he thinks may outlive him, and I I think that's it's a really powerful and, and uh, special thing for an artist to say, you know, that especially an artist like him who has made a lot of great songs. I mean, obviously Brick is extremely popular. That that song will live on for a long time, but it, it sounds like in hearing Ben describe this song that it means a lot to him, that it's one where maybe he's become a fan of it, that when he's a listener, it it moves him the way he was hoping it would move others. And that's that's a pretty cool thing, I'm sure, to be an artist, to write a song that you've marinated over so long and, and sung so many times live. You know, you would, you would think that most music would get old to the artist after a while, but it sounds like this is one that Anytime he comes back to it, it, it always gets him. And, and he said, this is the song that people talk about if they see him in the streets in public. He said, you know, almost every other day or, or weekly, I can't remember how he phrased it, but he said, all the time people are coming up to me saying, you know, that, that song meant so much to me. I I, I had it sung at my wedding or, or that, w- that was my husband and I's uh, favorite song. That was our song. You know, he said this this song has meant so much to so many people. And, and perhaps that's why it means so much to him. The fact that so many people have made a point to come up to him when they meet him. That's the first thing on their mind. Oh, I got to talk about the luckiest. So I think, no pun intended, he feels pretty lucky that he was able to create a, a song of this magnitude that has touched so many people's lives. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Let's let's get into the words of this one. I think true to Benfold style. They're simple, but they carry a lot of weight to them. The beginning of the song says, I don't get many things right the first time. And that line in and of itself stood out. We know that Ben has been married quite a few times. I think the number is five at this point. Yeah, I think he's still with his fifth wife. But this song would have been written midway through his third marriage with right. Australian singer Frally Hines. And I believe I read that was his longest marriage unless his current marriage has outlasted that. I'm, I'm not totally sure where he stands there, but at the time it was his longest relationship or longest marriage. Right. And she's the one that had the twins. Yeah. Who right. we mentioned still fighting. It was about Louis. And then he's got a song on a different album about his daughter, but a meaningful relationship, obviously. Mm-hmm. But and clearly he thinks he's got it right this time. It sure sounds yeah. like it anyway, you know. Yeah. I didn't get it right the first time or the second time, but I think I nailed it with this one. I don't get many things right the first time. In fact, I am told that a lot. Now I know. So he writes a beautiful love song. Yeah, and you know, I think you can write a beautiful love song, and I even think the relationship can be right and beautiful, and I, I suppose nothing is forever, and this still meant something to him. You know, this song this song is forever. I mean, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. the sentiment is still yeah. is timeless. The feelings that this song's talking about are going to exist in people, generations on generations later. So even though the marriage itself didn't last, 
the feeling does. Yeah, for sure. But he, he still finds a way to weave in a little bit of humor, even in a serious song like this, with the next line that says, in fact, I'm told that a lot, you know, <laughs> like that he doesn't get things right the first time. So apparently he's saying, yeah, everybody tells me I'm I'm wrong all the time, or maybe he rushes into things, or he gets corrected a lot, or whatever we can, right. we can assume. But, you know, at first he's admitting, you know, I don't get many things right the first time. Yeah, and a lot of people tell me that. In fact, I'm told that a lot. I like the next verse about envisioning a scenario where if he were to have been born 50 years before her, if somehow they would recognize each other, you know, if yeah, love yeah. is timeless that enough part, that yeah, something that part is so cool. would transcend that. Every time I hear that, I see that girl passing on her bike. You yeah. Know, he's, he's sitting on the porch or maybe he just happens to go out to the car at, at the right time and catches this girl out of the corner of his eye. And, you know, he doesn't know why, but he feels something you know, almost like a glitch in the matrix or something where it catches him off guard. And he's like, oh, wow, like I, I know this person or I'm supposed to, or, you know, like maybe in a different life, maybe in a different realm, I was connected to this person somehow, despite the fact that if, if you do the math, we'd be talking about potentially 60 or 70 year old being outside and seeing somebody between the ages of 10 and 20 passing on their bike. So obviously there, there wouldn't be a romantic interest uh, or, or physical feelings there. But this idea of if I'd been born 50 years before you in a house on a street where you live and you happen to pass by, would I know that, that we were soulmates and, and we happened to not cross paths for whatever reason? We were, we were born in the wrong times, but that we would still know there was that connection or something to that effect. What if I'd been born 50 years before you in a house on a street where you live maybe i'd be outside as you passed on your bike yeah just an interesting way to describe love in a you know kind of simple song but a very unique scenario there to to describe it and that occurs later too where he's mentions in that in the next verse his next door there's an old man who lived to his 90s one day passed away in his sleep his wife stayed for a couple of days and passed away as well and then he goes on to say i'm sorry i know that's a strange way to tell you that i know we belong that i know i'm the luckiest so and it is it's a strange way to tell somebody and that's what stands out about this song i think i absolutely love that verse and that's that's the part that always brings me close to tears at least gets me teary-eyed and me becoming emotional in fact i've probably cried listening to or singing along with this song more than any song i can remember that last verse is, is incredible you know we have to back up a bit here and 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 talk about a backstory to this this song that that we didn't mention earlier this verse wasn't even a part of the original song the original song was written by ben when he was approached by the film directors for a comedy movie titled loser and asked to write a song for their their final dramatic love scene so he put a lot of time into creating this song and it was basically the full song minus this last verse 
he had put so much thought into constructing the song from the music, every note, the tempo, the, the pace, the buildup, everything was based on the scene that he had seen in the movie. So they said, here's the scene, write a song for it. He got to know that, that scene of that movie so well before he wrote this song that it was attached to that scene. And eventually what happened was the film directors came to him and said, hey, this scene is not going to make the final cut of the movie. We love your song. We want to use it, but we're going to have to place it somewhere else. And and Folds was so attached to the, the song fitting perfectly with the scene that when they scrapped the scene, he said, you know what, I, I don't think I want you to use the song for your film. So, so he took the song and he thought it was good, but he knew it wasn't complete. And he, he knew he needed one more verse. He, he, he thought that it was really close to being a, a great love song. And, and he said that he needed to find the perfect way to finish the song, to crack the code, so to speak, as, as he said, and, and, and really make it represent love and, and, and do that in a special way. But he wanted it to be real and just wasn't coming to him. He couldn't figure out that last verse. He's found that over the years that if, if you're stumped on a verse and you leave it alone for a while, something will just happen. And sure enough, something did happen. He had a neighbor, an older man, who passed away and his wife died exactly a week later. Oh, wow. So that little part of the song is built based on a true story that yeah, happened next right. to him, next door to him. Yeah, yeah. and I don't know how like long the song, the song sat, but... Huh. Um, it sat there incomplete for a while because he wanted to find the perfect way to, to finish it. And he said he couldn't think of anything more romantic than than that. An individual passing away and then the other one not being able to go on without them because their place on earth was with that person. And, and now that that person's not there, you know, they, they can't go on anymore. Next door, there's no song really works i think it does what it's trying to do you know the emotion the imagery it, it does exactly what it was intending to do so i think in that respect it's it's perfect i think it's it achieved all of the things that it was trying to achieve so we talked about these two verses that have the examples the scenarios that he's he's playing out to describe how, how much he loves this person but there's also other ways he shares his love for this person within this song that's always followed up with, and I know I'm the luckiest. Getting back to what we were saying before about not getting many things right the first time, he follows that up with, now I know all the wrong turns, the stumbles and falls brought me here to this person. 
Where was I before the day that I first saw your lovely face? Now I see it every day, and I know that I am the luckiest. And he, he really hangs out on that sentence for a long time. He says that I am, I am, and he, he keeps dragging that on. He, he's really focusing on the fact that he really does feel that he is the luckiest to be with this person. And I on to say and in a wide sea of eyes I see one pair that I recognize and I and I know that I am the luckiest I'm the luckiest and as the song progresses it seems like he spends more time on those words and really making sure that it's clear that he feels extremely lucky to be with these person that he is the luckiest I think that's where the verses really make this a, a complete song and a, and a really special way of explaining the love between two people and somebody doing their best to try to express that. He absolutely achieves that in this one. I have to mention before we wrap up here, I almost sang this song at a wedding. Really? Yeah, so uh, a good friend of mine was engaged to his longtime girlfriend, and this was their song. This had always been their song. And he and I were, were pretty good friends. We were both fans of Ben Folds. So I think it came up in conversation one time. We were talking about this album, I think, way back in college. And I mentioned how I, I love this song and how sometimes it almost brought me to tears. And I think immediately he thought, oh, wow, you you are clearly attached to this song and would probably do a good job. Maybe you could sing it at a wedding. And, and he knew that I had sang in high school and that yeah. I could I could probably pull it off. And I, I jokingly was like, yeah, yeah, sure. I could, I could, I could sing it. Yeah, probably. And, and he was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Let's, yeah, let's do it. And <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't totally think that he would say, yeah, sure. You know, like let's commit to it. It was kind of just like, oh, you, you should sing that at our wedding. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. You know, I thought it was just, we were kind of playing around and yeah. And then all of a sudden it became serious. And I was like, oh <laughs> shit, he really, he really thinks I'm going to do this. And I was like, uh yeah I'd, I'd be honored uh to sing at your wedding that would that would be awesome and so i started practicing and i i started singing this song I, I mentioned earlier this is probably the song that i've i've cried to more than any song that i can remember <laughs> and that's partially because i've i've listened to it a lot and i've sang it a lot because i was i was thinking about singing it at the wedding and i was also thinking about my buddy and his fiance and and how special it would be if i could pull this off at their wedding but mostly it was because you were <laughs> scared out of your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that had that all had to do with it too. Yeah, they were tears of fear, not fear, not not of <laughs> love or happiness. <laughs> so I was practicing it, and man, I I had such a hard time getting through the lyrics. I I could get through most of the song, and then the 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 part where you have to to talk about the old man passing and and his wife staying for a while and thinking about how torn up she must be to to have this person that she had spent 60 70 years with all of a sudden disappear and the fact that she stayed for a while she, she you know she gave it a chance but 
ultimately she passed away too. And I could, I couldn't get through that, that part. You know, I just kept, kept thinking about, you know, the magnitude of, of something like that. And the fact that that, that actually does happen. You hear about that all the time. So-and-so died of a broken heart. The wife passed and then he passed later. That actually happens. I don't know if there's science behind it. I mean, I'm sure the emotions, the, 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 the emotional toll that it takes on your, on your body to go through something like that for somebody in their older years and, and later stages of their life, it probably could lead to a, a physical problem. But, um, it felt real. It didn't, it didn't uh, feel like you were singing about a, a fictional story or something, you know, this, this does happen. So all of that wrapped up into my, my thoughts of this song made it, made it really difficult to, to practice. But, you know, I was starting to get good. I, I, uh, I felt like I had it down, you know, I was feeling like, you know, I could, I could probably do this, but they never got married. So, <laughs> Oh really? Okay. I, I never, I never had to do it. No. I mean, wow. I never got to do it. I shouldn't say I never had to do it. I, I never got yeah. the opportunity to, to follow through with it. No, uh, things didn't work out. They, they broke off the engagement and that was that. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to find a reprieve here for you. You got another friend getting married. I'm sure. Well, somebody needs a song. Somebody needs a wedding singer. And I got this one 40% dialed in if you need somebody. So good start. It's a good start. That's cool. I'm glad you saved that story till just now. Yeah. But I mean, overall getting back to the song, it's, it's a really, really touching song. I, I think it's fantastic from, from the music fitting well with the words to the, the story and the, the creative ways of expressing someone's love for, for someone else. Uh, we've, we've talked about in the past. I know, I know Sean mentioned on the show when we were discussing the Harvey danger album that it's pretty difficult to write a love song. You know, some people have pulled it off over the, over the years. A lot of people have made some, cliche love songs that are i don't know kind of cheesy but to really make a genuine love song that feels real and and makes people feel that that emotion that's hard to describe that is love that's that's a really difficult task i think ben nailed it on this one i think so too and i'm glad you brought that up with what sean nelson from harvey danger had mentioned because i i think that's true i think this is probably the hardest thing to write about there's a bit more pressure behind it it's also just how do you describe it how do you say it in a way that hasn't been said already it, it's easy to write a pop poppy song about love you can repeat the same things that you you know find in a hallmark card somewhere and put, <laughs> yeah. a, put a nice beat to it and people like it and you know everybody likes hearing about right. love but it yeah. doesn't really capture it and i, I think there's yeah. a very yep. there's very few songs that really do that very well and i think this is one of them so and in that sense, I think a lot of people are talking about the general idea of love. This is this is a song written for a specific person. Yep. That takes it to a whole nother level because now you're presenting this to somebody who has to receive it, critique it, have an opinion on it. You know, they know they're the subject matter. So it's not just talking about love in general or about your love life or past relationships. This is specifically written to a person. This is like writing a love letter or writing your, your wedding vows, which I know you've done Trevor. And that's probably not an easy thing to do either because it's, it's a one-time thing. And then it's, it's there, it's iron into stone. It's, 
it's what it was and it's it's always going to be that just like this song he wrote this song he released it he probably didn't release any other songs maybe he wrote some that he sang to this wife of his in private but this was the song that made it out into the world and it's stamped it's there forever so there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of weight uh to doing that i'm glad he did i'm glad this song exists and i think it's a great way to end the album great pick overall shane i'm really glad i got to revisit this album with you and again it's one that i knew many more songs on it than i realized i had when you picked it but in revisiting them i think i didn't know what almost any of these songs really were about again coupled with maybe the time that i listened to it the fact that i didn't have the lyric sheet maybe i was getting a little bit out of my you know, deep music absorption at that particular time as I was transitioning from high school into college. And so revisiting these again, it, it was, it was kind of like listening to them again for the first time because I recognized that sometimes, as I mentioned before, Ben writes lyrics that don't always go together with the music. And I was surprised to find what some of these songs were about given the fact that I was kind of snapping my fingers and singing along to some of them, not realizing what was behind some of them. And then other ones, maybe I just didn't pay attention um, so much. So it was fun to revisit these with a new lens. I'm glad we did. And uh, it's a fun little trip down memory lane. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that, that I was able to revisit this as well because I, f- I feel the same way. There were a few songs that I was attached to because of the lyrics that I had dissected. The Luckiest is one of them, Fred Jones Part 2, and then probably Still Fighting It. Those are the three that stand out, perhaps others, but I think those are the only three that I really thought about the lyrics and really tried to understand them. I understand all three of those songs much better now than I did before, but I was connected to them because of the message, because of the the lyrics and the meaning. But the rest of the album, I think I enjoyed because it's a a fun-sounding album. Musically, it's great. I love piano. I'm I'm a sucker for piano, so all of these songs have a little bit of that and, and Ben is a great pianist so it was always fun for me to listen to it was a fun one to sing along to a lot of the lyrics are catchy a lot of these songs you could learn in fact I did word for word and sing them and have no clue what they're about which is it's kind of cool you know because there's that listener experience the musical experience that somebody can enjoy them without having to understand them or to dissect the the lyrics like we've done here but then to have done this album for our project and get into those other tracks i'm i'm so much more connected to them now that i know the meaning whereas before i thought they were fun tracks to listen to on the album but i didn't really have any personal connection to them but now i know the backstories i understand them a little bit minus that one about lucretia i'm still not sure what's going on there <laughs> but for the most part i think we figured out these tracks and and uh every time i listen to it now i think I'll have a different mood. I'll have a different uh, demeanor or or uh, reception of these songs. I think maybe some of those happy sounding songs that I used to smile and sing along to, I'll think about the meaning. I'll think about the message, some of the the deeper, darker elements of some of those. And I, I think it'll be a different listening experience. I mean, I think it was already. It has become. But when I come back to this in a year or five years or 10 years from now, it's going to be a lot different than it was this time coming back to it after all those years had passed. So I think that's a testament that what we're doing is is working. It's uh, having its a intended 
effect on us and it, it's connecting us to the music and it's connected me to an album that I already felt like I was I was really connected to from my childhood. So I selfishly am glad that I, I picked this album as well and I'm glad that, that you enjoyed it as much as I do and that we shared all this information because it's been a blast. It's been awesome. Yeah, you bring up an interesting thought there too. I mean, we we talk about revisiting these albums as if we missed something the first time, perhaps, you know, let's, let's go back and, you know, for the purpose of nostalgia, for one, it's, it's enjoyable to revisit something. Let's experience that again, but let's also maybe go look at it closer and see if we missed anything. But then there's another layer of it, which is we're not the same people as we were before. So it's not even necessarily that there's a stone unturned. It's that we're just the lens that we're viewing it through is different. Even if we would have poured over this, if we would have created this podcast, if those (laughs) existed in 2001 and dissected it as much as we could back then, it still wouldn't be the same as doing it when we're in our mid thirties. So there, there is something special about revisiting that coming of age years and those times when something connected to you at a different point in your life as well. So that's one of the, I think, separate little side benefits of doing this podcast is, you know, as, as that song said, it, it's weird to be back here. I I think it's interesting (laughs) to revisit this uh, from a different perspective, just like Ben is mentioning in that song. Yeah, that's a great point. I don't, I don't know if we would have been mature enough back then to understand or appreciate them. I mean, we could have done the same research and, and found some, some reviews and and hints to get us on the right track. and, And maybe we would have come to the same conclusion on the stories that are being told in the songs and the understanding of the lyrics, but we may not have processed it the same way. We may not have truly understood it uh, the way we do now, having a few more years under our belt and, and a few more life experiences to relate to some of these characters in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, I'm glad we did, and I'm excited to move on now back to the current year. Yeah. We'll be visiting a 2021 pick. If anybody's out there telling you that music sucks today, tell them they suck because <laughs> there's so many good albums out there. And this podcast has encouraged me to go look for them. And I am here to tell you that I have found so many and you should do the same. All right. Well, on that note, until next time, everybody, go listen to a great album. Is that a polar bear on your hat? <laughs> all right i'm i'm positive nice. i'm, I'm uh, stopping and then i'll tell you about the pol- <laughs> i'll tell you about the polar <laughs> if you're enjoying listening to album divers you can support our podcast by subscribing reviewing and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music follow and connect with us on facebook and instagram at album divers we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.